Hello everyone, welcome to Cordial Candor. I'm Sam. I have sashayed out of my physical closet and I'm sitting in my grandparents' house uh, We're going to record a, a podcast. This is actually the fourth one in our series that we've done in person. So we were sitting very awkwardly close, huddled around a microphone to have a discussion today. The first person with me is Dusty. How are you doing, Dusty? I'm a little disturbed that you just used the word sashayed. Uh, we also have Stephen today. Hello. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you. <laughs> So, anyway, I guess we'll just jump right into it. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Um, I don't have any riddles prepared or today in history, uh, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure how it should go today, if we should or shouldn't, but we shouldn't, I guess. But anyway, so we have with us our friend. Uh, we typically, you know, refrain from using last names, but it's Dr. Stephen, a recent change to his driver's license, most probably. Um so he started off at such a young age as a musical prodigy as our layman would probably consider him. Um, but he has had a very interesting life experience. So that's what we're here today to really talk about. So Stephen here at such a young age left home at, what was it, 12 or 13 years old? 15 actually. Oh, 15. Sorry, I was way off. So what was that like? Um, well, it happened kind of suddenly. Um, the reason I left was because of uh, applying to and being accepted to and then finding financially a way to go to a boarding arts boarding school in Michigan called Interlochen Arts Academy and um, I was very excited and I knew it if you're gonna leave home at that age I don't think you really know what you're getting into so I certainly didn't <laughs> um, so I um, applied as a horn a French horn performer and I was horrible, but they somehow accepted me. And I get there, and um, it's probably, I think there are about eight, no, 400 students, uh, musicians, dancers, creative writers, visual artists, um, and yeah, mostly musicians. Uh, and it was so bizarre. There are people from all around the world. My roommate was from China. He's, he spoke English, but very basic. Was he Mandarin or Cantonese? I believe he was from Beijing, so I believe that he was Mandarin. Is what that I means. think so. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I think so. Um, and wow, that was a big, that was a big cultural shock. I can imagine, particularly coming from here and then going yeah. straight to first straight to Michigan, and then surprise your roommates also from another country. <laughs> And speaks English, but not well. Yeah. And you certainly don't speak Chinese. I don't. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't, and I didn't. Um, <laughs> but he was a nice guy. We um, we had some disagreements, as all, all roommates who didn't choose each other probably do, <laughs> or even ones that do. What was the biggest disagreement you think um, you had? Well, it's not, I don't know if it's more of a disagreement than a uh, inconvenience. Mm-hmm. We are used to... To urinating in toilets, standing up as men in this country, and yeah. he was there was a new device for him, the toilet. So what do they use in China? I believe it's a more squatting. It's more of the toilets in the ground. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, and it's a very, I very different. Um, so you have this weird Western device full of water, <laughs> and look, think about it. Really, it's a bowl. In a room, anyway, um, he didn't. He had trouble aiming. 
and it was all over the place. And I, you know, you don't always wear socks or sandals in your room. And so, you know, oh God. feeling a wetness at the feet is somewhat disturbing as a 15 year old. I would um, definitely consider that an age. Or any age. <laughs> yeah, any age. But that's, I mean, that's one of those things that you never think about that toilets are different yeah. or the lack of, I suppose. Um, yeah. I have one. Oh, this is probably. I'm not going to say his name. He's like, oh, a a, a well well known performer, and, and he's an American citizen now, and uh, teaches at a prominent university. But I, you know, I was 15 years old, and it was kind of it annoyed me that he. I didn't understand why he didn't know how to use the <laughs> toilet, and um, so one day. I was taking a shower, and he knocked on the door. He's like, Stephen, I need to use the bathroom. I'm like, okay. And I just took my time, just out of spite. I know. It was horrible. But he, um, after, you know, it took probably another 15 minutes. I didn't come out. And I finally did, and he was, you know, relaxed on his bed. Didn't need to use the bathroom anymore. Go, like, oh, whatever. Didn't think about it again until later that day when it was time to take the trash out. Yeah. In yeah. the trash can? In the trash can. Uh-uh. Did he put it in a bottle? No, it was at the bottom of the bag. Oh, God. Sloshing around like a fish from the market. <laughs> oh, God. That's poetic justice if I've ever heard it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was gross. Like, I deserve that. <laughs> and he didn't get it anyway. At least he aimed correctly. Yeah. Well, yeah, at least <laughs> made it into the bag. <laughs> but um, in terms of other things on my... my my roommate. I was one of the only people from the South there. And I don't have a Southern accent any longer, but I did then. When I come home, it kind of it comes out a little more when I around my family. Mm-hmm. But um, so I was really self-conscious of my accent, not because of the way people treated me or anything, just because of I could hear the difference. And um, so I consciously tried to talk like a Northerner. And... Uh, I miss I miss my accent. <laughs> I can't really do it on command. It's weird. Yeah, I never really realized how much of an accent I had. I went on a mission trip to New Mexico, and that's when I really noticed how bad it was. I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> well, I think there's a stigma around southern accents that's really very unfortunate and not pejorative connotation. Yeah. Well, there's so many of them too, depending on yeah the region. Uh, I had a teacher here in town that made fun of my accent my freshman year of college yeah she was an english she was technically a writing class but it was an english professor and she said wow you really are from around here aren't you i was like well okay i guess i'm gonna gonna spend some time learning to enunciate now i suppose Uh, thanks for that Uh, probably a good thing you know not necessarily for my heart at the time, but right. long run, you know, probably a good thing uh, for a professional setting to learn to enunciate and not. I don't know. Sound like a isn't there? How would you describe the Kentucky accent? Because there's a distinguished. Meant, it's from there's definitely accents. a distinguishing, and there's de- a distinction between the East and the West. Because if you go to the oh, yeah. East, it gets a lot more. I don't know. I think it almost comes more towards a southern 
Georgia kind of thing when you go east a little bit more, or maybe it's more of a West Virginia kind of deal. But I was just like, Georgia exactly. isn't close to Georgia. We got the Appalachians. There's, yeah, going there's like a few yeah. states. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't know, but I don't know. Maybe it is more of a West Virginia thing that trickles over to Eastern Kentucky. But Western Kentucky, I don't even know how to. Yeah. I wouldn't know how to characterize it. It's one of those things where you know it when you hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely think there's a solid mix. Like, um, I'm, I'm kind of biased in my profession doing welding and stuff. Like, I'm around country accents all the time. And I think it's <laughs> definitely gotten worse. My accent has as I've gotten older. Um, but I, I don't know. Like, the Kentucky accent for me is it's all over the place. Like, I've heard some people who can't even, they, they, they don't speak properly. Like, it's It's bad. Uh, but then there are others that are, you know, fairly more like more literate. I think it just kind of depends on your education and uh, kind of your background in particular. But if you, if I had to try to describe the Kentuckian accent, I definitely think it's strong Southerner with a lot of Northerner influences. But yeah, because I mean, like whenever you go back to Civil War, I mean, you have Kentucky split in two, right. split in twain. I guess you'd say <laughs> uh, between the North and South, with the South capital being Bowling Green, Kentucky, and then the North being Frankfurt. I did not know that about Bowling oh, Green. Yeah. I didn't either. <laughs> you know what? That's where I live. So, yeah. <laughs> no idea. Huh? That's yeah. Interesting. Uh, um, I, I've always asked me <laughs> from if I'm when I was living in the North, like. Um, what how you describe the Kentucky accent and I always said it was a soft southern accent I don't know why I said that but no, I think there's maybe a softness to the Kentucky sound of a, a Kentucky accent I can see that it's not whatever that means yeah it's not <laughs> no, I, I consider you know not as um, it's not as harsh of a draw mm-hmm. um, you know it seems like the further you go for some reason Georgia sticks out in my mind their accent but it's more yeah. of a they have more of a long draw. <laughs> See, that sounds like Louisiana. No, I don't hear a little bit of man. We got a little bit of Okay. With a little bit of French. Like, it's a French Cajun yeah. deal in yeah. Louisiana. So it's uh, down on the bayou. <laughs> Interesting. And, okay. And Orgeron down there. You know, <laughs> if you don't know who that is, who you don't. Uh, you should look him up. And, no. Uh, Do you? LSU's no. football coach. Ah. And, uh, and, and Ron Hardy, he died in all time. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It happened all the time. We all go in there. We all win. We all play football all the time. It's ridiculous. He is like, he sounds like they put gravel in his mouth and we're like, all right, now speak. And, all right, this is how I have to talk all the time? Yes. Okay. Wow. It's it's really ridiculous and it's fantastic. I love listening and impersonations of him. Like you listen to him and you're like, no, that's somebody making fun of him, right? No, that's an impersonator <laughs> making fun of how he talks. No, that's actually just how he speaks. It's ridiculous. And what was his name again? Ed Orgeron. No, I have Orgeron. no idea how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to guess, it would be O R G E R O N, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I know not. He sounds he sounds ridiculous. It's incredible. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, was what was the striking things other than you know a different roommate mm. from going from a high school in Kentucky to a, a a performing arts school in Michigan? Yeah. Well, the, maybe the biggest thing is and that has less to do with what we were studying than where we were living. 
So, of course, you can go to public school or any school for that matter, usually in, in your hometown. You live at home for a while. And uh, since Interlochen was a boarding school, to, there were no, I would live, you know, 100 yards from where I went to school and ate and everything. You could never get away. No, you couldn't. Oh, my God. <laughs> the thing was, it, just, it was so beautiful in, in Interlock, and it's in the middle of a state park. Oh. Which hmm. is like, you know, and there's nothing around but nature and tall pine trees, and it snows a lot there. That was another big, of course, the climate difference between East, Western Kentucky and Northern Michigan is pretty diff, pretty huge. Yeah. I've got a friend from Michigan, an acquaintance, I don't know what to consider him, but he uh, grew up in Michigan and moved to Kentucky, and the way we treat snow here, he thinks it's just yeah. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, there might be a half a centimeter of snow, we better call off schools. I was we're done. super disappointed to go up there, and then there's like a foot of snow on the ground, we still go to class, you know. <laughs> what? This is absurd, and we should be hunkered down yes, in our bunkers. We Where's the milk and bread? <laughs> we need to raid the store, yeah. we need to hunker down. <laughs> and you know we get a foot and we're like oh man you know it's bad we'll be out of school for a week but yeah. it's even funnier when you go two hours south and Atlanta gets an inch and a half of snow and Whole they're like shut down. it down <laughs> put it on lockdown no more nobody's allowed outside the house you're like oh my gosh what's going on and it has to do I think and it's, it's there's a good reason for it and that the residents of the area don't know how to perhaps drive in, in those kind of conditions very well. And then North Michigan get a lot of practice with it. They have, you know, municipal structures that allow them to clear the roads really easily because they're, you know, they have to be prepared for that. Yeah. yeah. And ugh, maybe get some snow banks that would be 10 feet high in the middle of the winter. And those wouldn't melt until May. Ever. <laughs> you go to doing graduation and there's still a pile of snow over there that hasn't melted yet. That's, That's so cool. <laughs> if it weren't like ice at that point, it might be fun for a snowball fight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. We did We did that a lot. A lot of snowball fights. <laughs> we go, they had like some equipment for students. Um, so we'd go like snowshoeing or cross-country skiing, which I was horrible at. Snowshoeing was fun, but cross-country skiing is hard work. <laughs> it's not built for that. I would love to try it, but yeah. it sounds cool. Yeah. The first month I moved into my dorm at college, we had like two feet of snow in like a week. Wow. And that was the first time I ever saw somebody cross-country skiing and they were doing it across campus. <laughs> and it is a very steep hill. And oh, it's not man. like they were going down. They were going oh my up. God. I was like, what are you doing? Wow. Like, Were they walking up or were they actually... No, he was like... He was like it was like a mix of walking and see. It was almost like he was yeah. skating on oh, skis. Yeah. He was just kind of like, shh, shh, yeah. Shh. No, we y'all can't see this. But He's doing a very illustrative motion yes, with his I hands. I do this all the time. Like I'll just be like, I'm drawing a circle, but yeah. you can't see it. Well, usually we're on FaceTime, so it, it actually helps a little bit. There you but go. but uh, <laughs> you know, I was like, what is going on? Like I'm just trying to go to the subway. And get my ham and cheese sandwich, and this guy's skiing across campus. Okay, <laughs> right, welcome to college. We're just skiing across campus now. Yeah, but that so. is—I mean, I guess that makes it. It's strange when you move into a dorm, but I guess most people do it anyway when they go to college. You know, assuming you have a four-year big college experience so I you know I guess at a younger age I can't imagine you know at 15 
Um, doing it at, in the in your twenties is weird, <laughs> but at fifteen you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Now I'm fifteen and I don't know how to cook anything. I don't know how to. <laughs> I'm officially kind of on my own other than my roommate, and I better hope I like him, because if not, it's going to be a long semester or two. One thing I found interesting, I, I didn't realize before I went there this was going to be the case, and I don't I don't know if other colleges perhaps have this, but our dorm had a dorm mother, like a, a woman who was, I don't know, she wasn't in charge of the resident halls, she was just in charge of taking care of us. In a weird way, like she was, she was so nice, and she was there if we had, if there, if like people were upset about something or having disagreements. She made cookies. She had a really cute pug dog that she'd bring with her. I forget his name, but he was super her cute. Emotional support animal. Yeah. <laughs> and we, I don't know her name. We just called her mom. It was kind of weird. <laughs> I think that's kind of weird, but it was really nice. It was a good. So was she like an RA, or was she no. just like a? We had RAs. For each, we had four wings of the dorm, and each one had an RA. And she was like at the front desk Hmm. and like taking care of the common areas. We had like a television, some couches, and a fireplace, and microwaves, and hot water thing. Did you not have microwaves in your room? Um, no. How did you live? Well, we had a, we had refrigerators. If we wanted, we could bring a mini mini fridge. And at one point, I had a mini fridge. But yeah, no microwave. Well, we we had microwaves in the common areas. So we'd yeah, go yeah. there if we wanted to make ramen or something. Yeah, um, but with four hundred students, I, I can imagine. Well, that there were a lot of dorms. There was there were one, two, three. I thought the common four. area was like for all four wings. So oh, like I, I imagine the common area, and then like uh, branching from that, the four different wings. So I was like, oh my god. The uh, dorms were by. Uh, gender so there would be there were two men boys only dorms and then there were two girls only dorms um so and each one had a a a mother in quotes dorm mother uh but we had the best (laughs) she was awesome um i lived in a dorm called hemingway and then there was hemingway picasso mozart beethoven was another dorm and then oh the other was oh thor johnson was the name of another named after a old benefactor of the the arts center. Um, All the other ones named after yeah, great famous and artists. Someone with some money. Yeah, exactly. Sounds exactly right. right. Yeah. People who died starving. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah, but you know, we're grateful for Mr. Johnson's contribution. <laughs> they the building after him. He's probably somewhat grateful too. But, so, were you a troublemaker there? No, I was a very good boy. Okay. We had, um, was it curfew? At ten o'clock or ten thirty, mm-hmm. we had to sign in. It was that's what it's called, sign in, every night. And um, I, yeah, I never snuck out. I never, you know, had any illicit substances like drugs or alcohol. Other people did and were caught and were expelled, and that scared the hell out of me. I can didn't want to be kicked out. Um, people were suspended for smoking cigarettes, which I think is kind of silly. But. Um, yeah, it's those kind of things. I was very scared by by uh, <laughs> administrative <laughs> retribution. Yeah, <laughs> I I can see that, especially being a you know a prestigious private school where you know you want to be, not just like you know your standard high school where yeah. you're like. F it, I'm going to smoke in the boys' room. Yeah. <laughs> Smoking in the boys' room. Yep, that's what I was thinking. 
But that one. So did they? Really? You know, like, everybody knows that one. Uh, so it's like the they, third song of thought of this podcast. <laughs> did they? Uh, did you have like traditional? I'm sure you did. Like traditional math, English. Yes, we history. had we had academics, and we had a lot of choice over what we what we took. Like for instance, I, I kind of regret this a lot because I'm really interested in it, but I never took chemistry, mm-hmm. and I went straight to physics, which was a bad idea because I was taking algebra two and physics at the same time, and it was like it was too much math for me. <laughs> I was horrible. At it. I'm not a math person, by the way. Um, but I so I took the only math course I took in that school. By the way, I went there from sophomore through senior year. So I had one year in um, the public school here, which was great actually. It went well, but it didn't have the music program I was really hoping for. Um, now it's pretty great. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I, I I skipped chemistry and I just took my first year. I think I took algebra two, physics, um, an English course that was on centered around a particular writer. I think it was no, it was a sophomore English class. Later we did like uh, a myth like literature classes centered around mythology or um, a specific writer like Dostoevsky. Um, so the academics were actually really awesome. They were really rigorous and and just great teachers. And the teachers lived on campus hmm. for the most part. Not everyone did if they had a home in town, but um, they, had, they had faculty housing, which was, we never went over there. We weren't really supposed to go over to where the faculty lived. Mm-hmm. Never, I never did until much later. Um, but that looking back, it just seems unusual to have like a, your secluded school and everyone lives there the faculty the staff the students so basically it's Hogwarts with me <laughs> exactly <laughs> in northern Michigan Hogwarts yeah. of northern Michigan yeah. there you go <laughs> <laughs> but I loved yeah my experience there was fantastic I, I it's probably my, the best educational experience I've ever had looking back it was very very fond memories um, lots of great friends and people because you know, all kinds of different people from around the world and do you um, think you missed out on anything going oh, absolutely not to a public school? Because yeah. you were quoting as quoted as something saying to the effect of that it, you think of going away as anything not traditional, or you, you thought it was just as normal as going to any other high school. I forget exactly how you were. I don't know where you got that quote, but I <laughs> like you, you, you didn't <laughs> think it was anything different. Quote. It was it was yeah. a weird way for me to say it, but like I forgot exactly how it was worded. Never but thought of it as non-traditional. Yes, maybe? that's what it was. Huh. That's exactly yeah. what it was. Well, looking back, I, I missed out on a lot. I missed out on all, and I went to school in this town from kindergarten through ninth grade, and all of my friends were here, and I missed my friends. In fact, my first semester, I would I missed marching band so much that I was going to, it's like I'm not coming back. I'm only going to be here one year. But then as the year progressed, I got more comfortable, made more friends, and it was like, no, I don't think I'll stay. Interesting. They didn't have a marching band? No, I, wa- I loved marching band, and I wanted to, I really missed it a lot. That's really interesting for uh, an art school that way. It yeah. was so musically centered to not have a... Well, this is why there were no sports teams, organized sports teams like soccer, football. Right. There, there was, there, yeah, there were intramural like just recreational sports yeah. but we didn't have and marching band is well functionally in this country is right. <laughs> halftime football yeah. halftime halftime and parades yeah yeah but we had neither <laughs> but you, that's still very you know i would still think that they would have something even if it was for like a hey so you're gonna want to be a band instructor later on yeah well, 
we'll do some marching band stuff. A lot of the music uh, students who were there were really looked down on marching band, which I didn't appreciate. But the thought of it is, it's not so much about the music as it is about the show and the physic, the athleticism, it's the showmanship. Yeah, which I really enjoyed. But a lot of people were like, oh, "I want to fo- just focus on the music, and I want to play the standards. Um, I want to learn how to play my instrument the way you know, and focus primarily just on that, not on any ancillary hmm. stuff that's not going to help me later on." Which, huh, that's interesting <laughs> to me because you. It seems like most of the uh, the more prominent musicians we remember, even historically, tend to be the ones that were showmans and not necessarily, you know, oh, well, they were technically the best at this or this or this, but more of, even if it's not necessarily technically perfect, it's more of a entertainment showmanship value. And maybe that's just society the way we you know yeah, like things that make us nod our head and stomp our feet and well i think um um in terms of i think remembering people as performers is something that is more modern mm-hmm. in the last hundred years since we have recorded um documents like like records and now in video but i mean thinking back further like hundreds of years um there are fewer people remembered as as showmen and entertainers, as what we let they've left behind, which was a written document, or and there are a few but like exceptions to that. There's a Hungarian pianist named Franz Liszt. He's mm-hmm. like a rock star of his day, right. and he's remembered for that today as well. But he, what we have are his his you know written music. Same as uh, Nikolai Paganini, the violinist, who was another rock star of his day. Um, but he we know him. Primarily today because of his music, and but his reputation does as a performer it still lingers. But hmm. we don't have any record of it. That's true. So he's primarily remembered as a as a composer, which he really was primarily a violinist. Hmm. Interesting. That is that's one of those things that I, I guess I never really thought about. That you know we, we don't particularly in societies that don't put a focus on reading and writing worry so much about reading and writing things down that have to do with performances you saw tonight. There's no Twitter that you could be like, oh my god, I just saw I saw Mozart tonight. He was awesome. Yeah, we have, we, have, we do have reviews, of course, from hundreds of years ago, music critics, like uh, Beethoven symphonies, like some of the most famous, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Da, 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 da. Right. Everyone knows that. Those four notes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had to count the notes real quick. Um, uh, <laughs> and we have we have there's a, a book called the lexicon of of musical invective and it's humorous music critic reviews of famous pieces so basically it's the people who took a had a bad hot take like yeah this is awful <laughs> exactly what about put? beethoven's fifth and they're like no turns out yeah it was pretty good yeah i wish i could quote from it because it is their searing reviews <laughs> and like we don't remember this person who wrote this review, but everyone knows these four first four notes of this one piece that you trashed. Yeah. Hey, remember that bad take you had hundreds of years ago? Not, not it. Jeez. We're so, making fun of you for it. Now. That's right. 
so do you think the influences of music on the population of humans in general has changed because like we haven't really changed that much from the Cro-Magnons mm-hmm. so like you know music should influence us today as it did a thousand years ago yeah. but then like uh, societies you know often focus on different things but do you, would you like a couple questions here sorry do sure. you think it would be fair to say that we even focus more now on music than we did then because then we like we have people like Herodotus, people mm-hmm. like Julius yeah. Caesar who were fantastic writers, recorded military history perfectly well. So like society's obviously just focused on different things. So do you think music today is more focused on society? Does it have more of a uh, an impact on society? I don't. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, we have a, we can record music today in ways that are you know impossible and we so therefore it reaches many more people a single performance can reach every person on the globe today yeah practically speaking and um that was simply not the case until the 20th century right so before the 20th century your your performance reached let's say a maximum of thousand a few thousand people maximum that's that would be a huge event it didn't happen that often was it more of a uh, posh sort of sort of deal it certainly well it depends what, what kind of music there's music in every strata of society but what has been recorded and historically has been the music for the upper crust mm-hmm. I and mean, that's where the educated composers who notated music for posterity, posterity, not posterity, <laughs> uh, yeah, were were being hired and and employed. But it's just hard to say the influence of the music that we don't have a record of how it affected societies. But do you past. think the fact that we don't have a record of it is evidence enough? No, okay, I don't think so, because it requires on people having the time to sit down and the education to write about it and record it. And I think that for the vast majority of, of our ancestors, these didn't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite answering your question either. Well, I mean, I think you're, you're answering it fine for like the aggregate, I guess, but like even, you know, I don't know. I still think it would have been more written about if it were more uh, impactful, simple because, you know, uh, oh, it's more of a posture experience, I guess, uh, for a lot of the musical experiences, kind of like what we talked about. But then also, those people are the likely the ones that are going to be able to read and write. So if it was yeah. something that truly influenced them, they're likely they're more likely to write about it. Well, they certainly did. Think. We have record of it. Um, I honestly haven't read or studied much about um, the audience opinions from the audience at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but those documents do exist, and a lot of them, I'm sure, have been destroyed and just lost through time. Yeah, that's fair. But um, I think, yeah, certainly music has a more has more impact today just because it can reach wider audience. Because you get a, a hundred million iTunes download in <laughs> you know six weeks or whatever. If you're Beyonce or who I don't know who who do the kids like these days? What's the the <laughs> Rainbow Dude? Um, Takashi Six Nine. Yes, Takashi hey. Six Nine. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, People, yeah. He and Nicki Minaj put out a song relatively yeah. recently, and it's the video super is, popular. Yeah, the video is insane too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've seen the video. Yet. Anything that guy's involved in has to be somewhat insane. Like you have to be a certain level of mentally unstable to have, or on drugs, <laughs> to have sixty nine tattooed on your forehead. Is that? I went, I recently realized that I heard that a prison cell is also six by nine, and I want, and that made me Ooh. think of him. It's like, oh, does huh. that? 
refer to both things perhaps as a reference to the sex position and also <laughs> a prison cell yeah, that's kind of awesome. that's, that's kinda interesting cool. I, I didn't know that yeah. another six point the way you know huh. that is interesting hopefully yeah. I never had to measure that myself yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're in short in here <laughs> I was told I would have six by nine living quarters by This is five eleven by nine. Not acceptable. I demand a new room. The room service is terrible. One star. But it's uh, well you say you wonder about people recording their music a lot of but um, I think even more recent than ancient music, you know, native music to Native America, even folk music in, you know, places like Appalachia, there a lot of it was never written down so much as it's just and a but jam did those people did, but did those people have the ability to? Like you would write about those jam sessions though. If if it were that influential to you and to your society, I would think. I don't know well, for I think sure. People, I'm sure people did. I don't I think is I don't I don't have that much knowledge of what they people You're a resident expert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm admitting my my shortcomings. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've certainly I know about documents that exist yeah, yeah. from audiences, but I don't know about all areas of that. We, and we know that the music persists. The fact that it persists, it has an importance, right, and it has an impact on us today. So it must have had an impact on us in the past. I guess it Fair too means you know what kind of influence do you perhaps want for it to have. Well, I mean, it's kind of an arbitrary point. But. Well, but I mean, uh, to have an influence emotionally, I'm sure it probably, mm-hmm. you know, made people feel things. Yes, definitely. But, you know, is that enough to make you want to write it down? Do you write something down every time you hear a song that moves you emotionally? Yeah. And here, here's something to think about. Uh, music is the most abstract, without text, just the sound, is the right. most abstract art form there is. What is... A song in four four or three four time. What does that mean? It doesn't mean it only means it what mean you much to most people, especially what? if you don't read music it, or know how to interpret. Well, that. It means nothing concrete. I mean, right. like a painting of a flower is a painting of a flower. It can mean a lot of other things, but it's certainly that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, maybe you could say it's a painting of a flower, but it could most certainly just be a banana nailed to a wall. Or if it's Georgia O'Keeffe, it could be many other yeah, female parts. No <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Let's stick with water, really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, that's a good point. You know, I never really think about music being an abstract art so much because I think very, it's, you know, having some of a musical background you know you think of it as a very structured Mm -hmm. tempo and pace and you have a very I mean I guess it's only structured to the amount that the instructor or conductor depending on your but paces it out Mm -hmm. but I never really think about the fact that it's so abstract that it could just you know, it could easily change if you just decide a little bit faster this time. Yeah, interesting You're, you're talking about tempo I was just reading about tempo last night, um, and it has to do with how we perceive units of music, because mm-hmm. there are beats and there are pulses, and we group those into larger beats. So tempo is how fast you're, you're, or slow the, you're going. Um, and these are psychological effects as to what the pulse is, where is the beat, because we perceive beat at a moderate tempo. 
but beat can be performed intellectually and, and physically at faster or slower tempos. So you can play a piece fast and slow, and perhaps that changes what it means, but what or how it, how it makes you feel, certainly. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, just don't think, dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> it's the same if it's slower. Dum, bum, bum, bum. I guess it could <laughs> I don't have know. Kind of impact. <laughs> It's one of my favorite things to do is go through Spotify different performances of by different conductors and, and they take different tempi and find the ones that are the shortest time on Spotify and they're usually fast tempos. Versus the, longest the very longest and they're so different. I hate usually like my predilection is to despise slow tempos of anything because I think <laughs> music is all about dance, about movement. Uh, maybe it's movement in our minds, but it also makes us move physically and um when it's slow when something is performed slowly it just loses a lot of movement and i really it's a my personal taste i love fast Hmm. and and feeling the those beats those pulses in a a quicker tempo edm yes Uh. (laughs) (laughs) which is funny because i've never really thought about that but depend i guess depending on the situation naturally you know if you're working out i don't necessarily love to listen to slow music while i'm working out because that's kind of a bummer but um frequently if i'm just listening to something as background music or something you know just to kind of have something going It'll be something more slow. Just I guess it's more of the relaxing pace. But I tend to find myself, you know, swaying to that music more frequently than a, a fast pace. So I don't, Interesting. I don't know. That is- yeah. Well, you're maybe you're feeling instead of those, you're feeling the beats within the beats, mm-hmm. perhaps as well. I don't know. So there's the, also a, a division of the of the tempo as well. So do you feel. think there's like dopamine or serotonin like uh, directly attributed to the tempo? That's interesting. The... Probably. Yeah, absolutely. I think, now looking back, I never thought about it before, but I certainly feel those rushes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That rush. <laughs> That's where it comes from. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know much rush. I don't either. Yeah. But I know it's know. a band. I know it's a band. <laughs> That's about as far as I'm with it. I, I before my know. time. <laughs> yes, I know probably before my time. two songs. And, uh, There's Arizona? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Two songs, Arizona? Maybe. That was a uh, bad pun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. Now I can't think of anything. Tom Sawyer's the only one that comes to mind. Oh, yeah. I know a, a cover of Tom Sawyer. <laughs> don't know the original. Uh there's a book of it too. Oh, I trust you. I'm not much okay, of a reader. first, the song or the book? <laughs> Probably the book. <laughs> you never heard of the book Tom Sawyer? Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. Okay, I've heard of that. Um, what's his name? Samuel Clemens. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Twain. Mark Twain. <laughs> the only quote by Mark Twain that I choose that to remember. Probably be canceled pretty soon. Yeah, though, that's so. true. <laughs> It's uh he gosh how does he say he's like know the facts but then destroy that distort them at your leisure which is my favorite quote <laughs> maybe ever <laughs> but, okay if anybody wants to know the egg came before the chicken how do you figure that is one hundred percent how it has to happen well the egg had to be laid by an organism an animal that was not a chicken 
Well, okay, unless it's like more of a divine. Yeah, I was, I, we're talking about creationism or evolution. I was like, that's interesting, yeah. The one that we can scientifically prove. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> the egg. Yeah, absolutely. But then, yeah, what is a chicken? What was Something a chicken? that is genetically a chicken. I mean, I don't know how else to prove a chicken. How come chickens couldn't be born as mammals are, where they're live born instead of egg born and hatched, and then they evolve to hatch? Well, we would have hatched first, birds. and then live birds is a way to protect your young. So birds come from dinosaurs. We know that there's reptile evolution there somewhere. Uh, so I guess... But fish also lay eggs, and didn't reptiles evolve from fish? We all evolved from fish, yes. So the egg came first, just not necessarily a chicken. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, well if, you're, if the argument is the chicken were the egg, a chicken didn't the lay egg the egg. Of the chicken. An egg was a chicken. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Interesting. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because there was a chicken in the egg, and the yeah. egg was also... It wasn't, it wasn't a silly chicken. It was an egg before it was a chicken, because it has to develop, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is what's really fun, isn't it? It's pissing me off. <laughs> if you want to flip, you just mentioned that the, yeah. we never landed on the moon, and yeah. oh, boy. in the basement. Oh, yeah. And it <laughs> <laughs> you know what they, That's not true. <laughs> you know what they say, NASA wanted to fake it, but NASA and Buzz wanted to fake it on the moon. <laughs> God. We can fake it. Let's just go to the moon and fake it. Let's there. do it. <laughs> that would be the easiest place to practice if we just went there and faked it. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy. Have you started watching Space Force? Oh, yeah. No. I finished it. You finished it? I yeah. haven't finished it yet. But it was, was, was it like, good? I, We're at three different stages of this. This is yeah, so cool. it's very it's exciting. Very exciting, actually. Uh, what's your your take? Oh well, so it's not what I expected when I saw a Jim Carrey or a Jim uh, Carrey, Steve oh, Carell, Steve Carell show. Because um, I expected, for some reason, I was really expecting The Office, and you did not get that nearly as much. Uh, it's still goofy. Don't get me wrong, like. <laughs> The scene where he stands in front of the window singing the Beach Boys, yeah. like, I just really wanted to start, I, I wanted to roll around laughing. Like, I was so funny. Because um, it just came out of nowhere, totally out of left field. But, like, it was not what I expected. But it's it's good. It's not, it's not a bad show at all. Um, it definitely caught me by surprise that it was, I, I don't know. It just wasn't at all what I expected. I was guess I once in a good it, way or a bad way. Yes, I think once I determined that it wasn't going to be, I think once I figured it wasn't going to be like The Office, I was really afraid that it was going to take a hard left turn and just be now it's going to be a really political show and it's going to have some kind of hard hitting message. It's going to try and push through, and I was really hoping that that wasn't going to be the case. So the branch of the military might actually lose the trademark to the television show. Yeah. How? Um, more on top of registering the trademark. That's what I understand. <laughs> How hilarious yeah. would that be? But, uh, <laughs> we lost the war to a TV show. <laughs> um, Dusty, we have the exact same take on Yeah, I 100% was like, I can't wait to see The Office 2, yeah. Space Force. Because Greg Daniels and Steve Carell... Are together again, and then you want it. It's not a mockumentary. 
Yeah. Which which is what I was afraid it was going to be once it was yeah. in the office. It's like, oh, they're just going to, like, oh, look, oh, Space Force, what a dumb idea. Let's mine. And I was like, okay. like Except I Space Force is such a good idea. I love it. <laughs> but then once it, and I, I don't want to spoil anything, once they get the first thing up into space and what happens to it, like, immediately. Yeah. And then... Did he get hit by a screw? No. And then they go again, and then when they go up again, like, that's right where I'm at. Is they? See, oh, my gosh. Is That's, that's where I ended. Oh, that's very um, fun. I'm very excited for you. And then, uh, <laughs> so I don't know how much more I have to go. I might be close to the end of it, but I'm not certain. But um, ten, Only ten episodes. So I think I was on seven, so I'm just, okay. just a little over, oh. like, around three quarters of the way then. But, yeah. like... Um, one of the scenes I really enjoyed was when he went to Congress for his oh yeah for his budget meeting. Great. I thought that was a, like yeah. As far as uh, a powerful scene that wasn't too serious, mm-hmm. I was really impressed. The way the characters, the acting is done well. The writing seems to yeah. be very good. Um, yeah, I think that there's actually. A, you mentioned that scene. It reminds me. There is a connection between the office and Space Force, and that is that it has a. There's a heart, and there's silliness. Yeah. These two things. It is a good balance of both. Yeah. I think that moment is like a moment of of that heart. Yes, I agree. It's not as. Uh, I think the office was more. Heavy on both ends. Yeah. Probably more silly and more heartfelt, just because of the way that the silly always led into a heartfelt. Yeah. Um, and this has. I guess fewer moments of each, but it's uh, you know the the good the powerful moments hit like they're supposed to, and the silly moments break it up just enough that it makes you laugh. It's surprisingly very good. Yeah. I was not expecting it to be what it was. Once I was like, oh, it's not the office. Yeah. I'm probably going to be disappointed. Yep. But it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I need to finish it. It means I have to start watching. Yeah. But I've got to I've got to wait till after I finish Avatar. How to get away with murder? And <laughs> I'm watching another one. How to get away with murder as well? It's so slow starting off. Like I, well, I mean, I think it moves around too much for me to like actually grasp my attention. But like it it's, by the end of the first season, it makes it makes it worth it. I haven't finished the first season yet, but it's just Once weird you get there. that they keep going back to the bonfire night. And I'm like, yes, I get it. At the beginning of every episode, it's the same. Like. You're not progressing that any further. You're going back to the same spot. Well, they show you just a little bit, a little bit different eclipse, and like around the the tenth or so episode, I think is how we're doing on there. Uh, they uh, they kind of pull it all together, and it all starts to make a little bit more sense of how uh, things went from marginally well to extremely bad, <laughs> egregious, some might say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, yes, watch Space Force. You can't be that. Avatar doesn't take that long to watch. It's always. But I have to watch it with Elizabeth. If she gets mad, I don't. If I don't watch it with her. Well, see, but then you can watch something else. Well, she's not there. But then again, I, I work a lot. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. But yes, I was very pleased with Space Force. I was Me like, too. this is definitely something that. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad this exists. I can't wait for the next season. I can, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, all right, season two. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. that. Get <laughs> I, get, I'm almost, I feel bad now because, like, used to, 
you know, I would have no problem. Like, it would suck, but, like, you know, I'd wait a year for the new season of whatever yeah. to come out. And now, as soon as I finish season one, I'm like, all yeah, right, when's season two going out? Two days after it's released. I'm like, <laughs> come on. Let's like, get on this. The Mandalorian, I totally shot myself on the foot on that one. I was watching them as soon as they came out, and then all of a sudden, it's like, next yeah. season came out till next year. Just like, yeah, well. Yeah, you don't have that, that thing to look forward to every Sunday or whenever it was. Yeah. yeah I, I miss that about network television before... All the binge fests. Yeah, it was like, oh, it's Wednesday. Whatever's yeah. coming on, and you're like, yeah. Yeah. When when the Office was on the air, it was also on the air with Thirty Rock, um, Parks and Rec, and Community. Oh, and that gosh. was Thursday's yeah. two hour block. It was like, oh, Thursday. Heaven. That was a powerhouse. <laughs> yeah, I've I never, loved that. I've not watched uh, Thirty Rock, but I love the other three. Wow. It's a different feel, but it's the really community. good. Yeah. Troy and in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world? What? Have you not seen Community? No. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you should watch that as well. Oh my god. <laughs> what are you doing here with all these cameras? <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah. It's so silly, but it's funny. It's, it's funny it. for that reason, really. Is it's just hot, silly hijinks at a community college. Yeah. And it's like, okay. Oh. I can get by. Community college wasn't that fun. <laughs> it just it makes it seem look realistic. so much fun. Yeah, it's so much fun. Looks, it makes it look awesome. You're like, oh, this is the place to go. Were you best friends with the dean? <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, I thought everyone was. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even on like, campus for most of the time. That's true. Yeah. Everyone and else Pierce. was excluded. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And the interlude episodes that they do, the mm-hmm. paintball, I thought were oh, yeah. those were the best episodes. Very creative and... What else has done had done that before? Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. It was like, all right, we're gonna have to go somewhere else. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I had to write down the name of his school because I was gonna ask, oh, well, what'd you do after interlocking? But I kept forgetting the name of it. And I kept like coming back to me and forgetting it. Come back because I had to write it down. <laughs> so what'd you do after interlocking? Yeah. Well, I guess I sh- one thing I should mention. Yeah, I went to interlocking as a horn player, a ma- horn major. You majored in whatever your focus. So was. like. French horn specific. I mean, yes. I know you played the French horn specifically, but yeah. I didn't know if when you say a horn player, they uh, said, "Okay, well, horn. What else is a horn?" Well, the reason I, I exclude French is because it's not a French instrument; it's a German instrument. Interesting. And so, horn players, like the International Horn Society, thinks that we should call it just the horn. The so, horn. Why, how did French? Um, you know, I don't. I don't why remember. Why is it called French fries? Why is it called French toast? I guess we uh, give the French credit for some things. And- there's another instrument called the English horn, which is French. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> what is an English horn? It's like an oboe, a huh. lower yeah. pitched oboe. Beautiful okay. instrument. But um, why can't we name things accurately? Like, why can't we all just be <laughs> astrophysicists? And just like, what's that thing that we can't see because it's black and it's just a yeah. massive hole? Oh, a black hole makes sense. All right. <laughs> Uh, there's got to. I know there's a, there's a good story behind why it's called the French horn, and I just don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I went there as a horn, French horn player, and uh, but I was also really interested. I loved composing because before I left Owensboro, I had like the the symphony here played a piece of mine, which was the most unbelievable experience. Like what? I mean, this huge rush of excitement. I can imagine, especially, you know, at such a young age, that that would be, you know... Yeah, why do they do that? Why do they play an eighth grader's piece? That's I don't know why they did it, but I'm so grateful for it. 
So that infected me with the desire to keep writing and, and chasing that feeling. It just gave me chills a little bit. That's awesome. <laughs> so when I, uh, my first day on campus, I brought a bunch of pieces of mine and my parents were there with me I was 15 and they were talking to like the dean of the music school and they're like oh he also loves to write music he's like oh well he should submit, submit some of his scores and if he has any recordings and then um, like maybe he can join the composition forum because they're also composer composition majors there and so they looked at my stuff and they're like oh yeah you're more than welcome to be a double major so I did composition and horn, though I went there originally for French horn. and um, But immediately, I was like, I quit the horn, I am going to do composition. I didn't quit it, I just didn't practice. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> I still went to band in the morning and did horn lessons and horn ensemble, um, but also went to composition form and wrote pieces, and they had... Um, you'd have to you'd write a piece of music but then you'd have to find performers so you had this your neighbors were your performers yeah so you, my roommate would play pieces of that I wrote and um, you know I started writing small pieces for well 13 instruments is not that small but uh, my first piece there was for 13 instruments and then 13 different instruments or 13 uh, instruments were 13 performers okay and most of them were different instruments but there were some string players you that I doubled some of their parts. Okay. Um, so first and second. Yes, part. exactly. Okay. Of like violin one would be two players, violin two, two more, oh, okay. two players. Um, what was your roommate's instrument of choice? He was a double bassist. Oh. And he did play my first piece. Huh. Yeah, he was the double bass. There was one double bass for that. And he was, he was an excellent player, and he did an excellent job in that. So composing, is that something that was just... You know, an intrinsic ability or something you had to work at quite a bit to get there? Um, well, oh, yeah. I was, it's something you never, you're never like, you don't reach the plateau and now you're there. You're, you're the, as good of a composer as you're ever going to be. It's something you always continually get better at. And mm-hmm. what, what means, what is good music that you write, that always evolves and changes as well. But, um, I mean, it's something I still do. <laughs> still a composer uh, primarily and an educator now but um the I, these pieces i was writing at, at interlock and they, i kept wanting to do bigger and bigger ensembles so then my junior year i wrote a piece for a large orchestra 60 players and chorus which was another 20 or so they're like 80 people on stage and I had to go to each one and ask them to do it and I conducted it and organized all the rehearsals it was a pain in the hold on how old were you when you were doing this one this was a year later I was 16 17 oh my god I couldn't imagine trying to do something like that (laughs) at 16 or 17 it was it was fun I just it was it was hard but it was just fun work so I just kept kept at it and um that was I mean that was the up until that point the best experience Experience I'd ever had as a musician, period. Like with experience with music. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I was focusing on composition, and then I applied to other educational institutions as a composer, not as a horn player. So I applied to Juilliard, 
um, Indiana University, Eastman School of Music. Wait, so Indiana University has a strong music program? Excellent. The Jacobs really? School of Music is one of the world's best music schools. Interesting. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. There are a few universities like that, like the University of Michigan uh-huh. also has an amazing music program. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, but I, I also applied to this school called Curtis Institute of Music, which is a really unique place. It has 160 students, so it's super, super small. But um, there is there were four or five composers at that time at the school, and so they'd have one opening a year, hmm. and I, I got accepted everywhere. And then I was on the wait list at Curtis. And then I got a call one day from the professor. He's like, hey, we have an opening for you now if you want to come. And I was like, I was going to go to Juilliard, but it was going to be super expensive. Mm-hmm. So I went to Curtis instead. Interesting. And it was... Uh, that's a very small 140. <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> it has an orchestra, enough people to populate a single orchestra. Um, it says some pianists, some harpsichordists, some organists... People wait. People still play the harpsichord. People still play the music from the sixteenth, wait, seventeenth or eighteenth century, which has a lot of harpsichord. I guess that's a good point, but I did not imagine that there would be people who still prominently focus on the harpsichord. Yeah, people major in it, but they also, since it's a keyboard instrument, they can also play the piano and maybe the organ. Is there a pretty easily, are those pretty easily translatable? Certainly the harpsichord and the piano are pretty close. The difference between the two, the the reason it's called the piano is because it's really called the piano forte, or the forte, piano forte, which means in Italian, soft, loud, because it was the first keyboard instrument you could control the the volume, the dynamic of the instrument by how hard you press the key or how softly you press the key. So the harpsichord, you cannot control the dynamic with your touch. It's all the same touch, feels the same. And you're plucking the string instead of the piano striking it. So there are a lot of differences in the mechanism. But um, that's why the piano was a big leap forward. It's like, oh, we can be so much more expressive with this keyboard instrument than with the harpsichord, which is just pretty much flat on in terms of dynamic in terms of volume which is how you get the different pieces from Furelise to Little Richard yeah totally. well those are all on the pianoforte or right. the piano but you know you get the yes yes oh right totally yeah exactly very different with such little I mean really such little yeah Advance, I mean, changes from the original to the... Yeah, the uh, keyboard I mean, is exact, it looks exactly the same for a harpsichord. They're a little, the keyboard keys are a little shorter, um, but they are the same width, essentially, and they have the same arrangement of white and black keys. Um, so that goes back even before the harpsichord. I mean, that keyboard had been... I'd been designed that way. What was a keyboard instrument before the harpsichord? Uh, I, I mean, I guess maybe an organ? The organ Oregon. goes back. <laughs> Oregon goes back to well. The keyed organ goes back, to, I believe, the fifteenth century. So we have um, organs from that time that are still in existence, and it's kind of amazing because it's are a really complex it? instrument. Yes. 
Yeah. Huh. Not without a ton of of maintenance. Oh, I would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How now? I'm sure a modern day organ is much more electronic than it was previously. How did those work previously? Do you know? Oh yes, absolutely. That how the mechanical organ yeah. works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there are bellows because there had to be constant airflow. And what this air is just flowing through a main chamber and attached to these chambers are where the pipes are. Mm-hmm. And so when air flows through the pipe, it it's kind of like a, a recorder. It flows yeah. across a certain angled um, device and it produces a, a vibration of pitch. So it's almost just kind of like a big flute or a big recorder yes. that you press the corresponding key on the keyboard and it opens up the hole and totally. sends it up the pipe. Yep. Well, this has to be manually built the in. Pipe. The sound comes out the front oh. where the little, little the angled yeah. part, part uh, device is. And the rest of the air goes through the pipe, but the sound is actually coming from the front of it. Hmm. Um, my favorite thing about the organ, people don't like the organ because they associate it with church music, church music which... Which I love, but some people they're being forced to listen to it, or perhaps it's not their style. They just don't like it. That's fine. But the organ is one of the most amazing instruments. One, it's the largest instrument ever built. Okay, it's big. Two, it's the first synthesizer. So you said it's like a yes. flute. Well, yes, you can make organ sounds that sound like flutes. You can also make organ sounds that sound like trumpets, like strings, like the voice with vibrato. Hmm. Um, so, and there are all these different stops you can pull, and it activates different ranks of pipes. And so, you can have a full orchestra in an organ. That's, That's really cool. I had right. no idea because yeah. I've only heard it in that you know. Yeah. And now to think, you just need the little Casio keyboard you can plug in, <laughs> and you're good to go. I've seen some organs that have xylophones, so you can pull a stop, and it plays like. A xylophone or a set of chimes, like Seven Memorial Church in downtown Owensboro has a set of chimes that you can play really? with the keys. Yeah. Huh. I didn't even know the organ still worked in there. Oh, I have no a idea. Great organ. That's a great instrument. Have you played with it? Yeah. <laughs> I love the organ because there's, there's so many. Like, here's one of the coolest things about sounds. One of the coolest sounds you can make with an organ that you don't hear very often because it's not great for the instrument. The organ is off. The bellows are off. Go ahead and depress. The, oh, how about this? Let's start the other way. The organ is on, the bells are on, there's airs flowing, you press the keys, you get a chord, and then you turn off the organ, turn off the bellows, and then you hear it wind down. But what happens to the sound, it slowly, because the velocity of the air and the pressure decreasing, it starts to glissando or, or bend downwards in asymmetrical ways. So not every note is bending in the same way. Mm. And it's the coolest sound. And I don't know the term for it, but I just—it's one of my favorite. Is there songs. a term for it? Maybe you yeah. can make up the term. Oh no, I, I know there is. I've, I've looked at it at one point. I just don't recall. Hmm. It's like a, yeah. Let's call it the. That is, I hadn't really thought of organ that, that it wouldn't just. They wouldn't just decrease stop. at the same. Well, yeah. And even if they have to, you know, like bagpipes, if you, you know, it sounds it's like not that. Just gonna, you know. Cut yeah. off if there's air in the bag and you're still squeezing it out, but it exactly never. Right. I guess even with that, it would just kind of the blah, 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 the way the air would come out. It wouldn't all necessarily be constant, so it would, yeah. as you say, degrade. Mm-hmm. Huh. I love the organ. That. Yeah. I think everyone should ch- give it another sh- a chance. <laughs> give it a rod, burn, stone, and fire. <laughs> 
are there pieces written that aren't like that? Oh, yeah. People still write for the organ today. And through the 20th century was where the most experimentation in music has ever existed. And so there's all kinds of weird stuff for the organ. (laughs) George Ligeti, a Hungarian composer of the 20th century, died 2003, I think, 2003-2006, has a piece for an organ called Volumina. And... A voluminia, something like that. I think it's volumina. It's um, so weird. It does not sound like the organ. Hmm. It's just well, I know so what bizarre. rabbit hole I'm going down. <laughs> so I just I, from a historical perspective, just out of curiosity. So, like, did the Iron Curtain have a significant impact? Do you think on the music that was going to oh, and from? Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think that alone hindered the? Mm, how far music has gone or would it should have gone? No, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't say that. I would, it definitely created a different strain of music in the Soviet Union. Um, um, so here's the question. Which one's better? Oh, that's totally up to the eye of the beholder or the uh, ear of the beholder. Fair so enough. Speak. <laughs> I, love, I love a lot of music that came out of the Soviet Union. One of the most famous Soviet composers is named Dmitry Shostakovich. I'll trust and, you. Oh, I, <laughs> check him out. He's got some really cool stuff. Like it's, I wouldn't know symphony, how to spell it. <laughs> but he was, he was a subversive composer because the state was telling him what he mm-hmm. could and couldn't write. But and they may not understand what he was writing. So in, there's there are pieces of protest, and it was not totally obvious to the listener, because if it was, he would have been executed and murdered. Yeah. So, but Two now, as you go, exactly. Never be the last one. Cla- never be the first one. Stop clapping. <laughs> yeah, just as Stalin would kill the first totally. person that stopped clapping. Was that oh, I didn't know that. Capriccio, yes. It's a, a story from I think it's the Gulag Arc Capriccio is what the book is called. And there's this story, and I don't know if it's real or not, but the man, you know, they're introducing Stalin, and everybody's a standing ovation, and it goes on for minutes and minutes and minutes. And the records of it going on for hours. Finally, someone stops and sits down, and everybody stops and sits down, and that man is arrested and taken to the gulag, and, you know, never be the first one to, they they told him, Mm -hmm. supposedly, never be the first one to stop clapping. Wow, uh, the gulags for everyone who's not who's listening or doesn't know the gulags were essentially the Holocaust camps, but in the Soviet Union, uh, a lot less sim- symptom- uh, systematic killing, but there was a lot of killing. But that's I guess yeah. I never really thought about. I guess did they have a lot of? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of propagandized music coming out of there at that time. I really like some of it. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, there's a cantata on the 30th anniversary of the October Revolution Ooh. by Sergei Prokofiev. Is that the title of the? Yes. That is one <laughs> heck of a title. It's really bizarre and cool. I like the music, and you just don't. I mean, think about the circumstances too much. Uh, but the music itself is is a um, piece of music. Yes. Yeah. Really so, how do you properly ascertain whether or not it's like, for, like, because you say it's for protesting, but how do you know that? Like, how do you know it's not, you know, like, hail the Soviet Union, and it's like down with the Soviet Union? Well, we have writings from the composer himself, and from his people who know him, who okay. like his, like who talked to him, and we're also, you know, on the same side as his composer, and that we only really know from their relation of. Of what he said. Okay, for some reason I thought you were listening to it, and you're just like, "Yeah, no, down can, with the Soviet Union." <laughs> you can kind of hear it. You do hear, um, like, there's a Seventh Symphony of Shostakovich, Leningrad, 
having to do with the siege of Leningrad, the Nazi siege. Mm-hmm. And it's um, this repetitive melody that just goes over and over and over again, but every time it recurs, it's orchestrated. Different instruments are playing different things, and it builds, it builds, it builds to this chaotic... And it goes from something innocent to something that is so destructive. And um, it was... Shostakovich said, oh, this is a... a uh, a depiction of the siege of Leningrad, but to his friends and other musician friends, he said, "Well, it's really just this is more like the supre- uh, suppression of the Soviet people," mm-hmm. and so it meant both. But it was in the ear or the eye, in the mind of the beholder. Fair enough. Hmm. Interesting. You might see if you can find. I don't know. Is that would that be copyrighted? Copyright? It is. It's still under copyright. I mean, no. How? <laughs> uh, well, in this this country, if it's been copyrighted in the United States, it's seventy five years. But what if it was copywritten in a country that no longer exists? How oh, do you yeah. enforce those laws? Those copyrights have been bought by publishing companies. I'm sure okay, someone would buy that now. Yeah. I just didn't know how that worked. For a long time, it's been very difficult to get the printed music of, by these composers. Really? Yes. That's very interesting. You would think that they would, if once they buy the copyright, they'd be like, buy it, please. It only so very recently was it bought by a new publishing company that had more, I mean, has more um, resources to do those things. Then again, I guess, what was the Beatles music wasn't on iTunes for so long yeah. because Michael Jackson said no and, you know, best you could do was go buy it. CD. It's a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, recordings by this composer, they're available everywhere. Go to YouTube. Look him up. Seventh Symphony, first movement, Shostakovich. Fifth Symphony, last movement. How do you spell Shostakovich? S H O S T A K O V I C H. Shostakovich. Seems legit. I wonder if that's <laughs> where they get the name Shasta the Soda. Isn't that a I don't know. Shasta. I feel like it was. Uh, Shostakovich, his, his shortened like nickname is Shasti. 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 Shasti hmm. 7, Shasti 5. Hmm. That's cool. I never would have thought of that. But. Yeah. I think, too, it's weird. Even though we have such a, a broad... I mean, you can get music from anywhere in the world. I still don't listen to much music that's not from... I mean, I suppose I get some influence from Canada, a little bit from Latin America, and some from Europe, but mainly it doesn't seem to be that there's much music, even in the mainstream music particularly, but that may be more because of the limitations of popular, the pop genre of music that you don't get that on the radio, but even when I'm going and looking up things myself, I don't... Like I only really find like American artists. Oh, yeah. Do you think we have like kind of a monopoly on the the mm, market of music? Definitely not. There's, I mean, one thing I'd recommend to find these artists is to go to if you have Spotify, to go to the those countries' top fifty lists. Some of it is American music, mm-hmm. but oftentimes it's local artists. And um, the thing that you lose out on is if you don't know the text the lyrics the, the translation right. which you can look that up of course but if that if you're someone who listens to music for the li- lyrics they may I, I encourage you to still look for it but um, it's more maybe of a visceral experience of experiencing the, the sound rather than understanding at the time what they're saying is there a big difference in I mean musically 
the music from, I mean, I'm sure there are different influences and small minor differences, but is there a big difference, like a, a large difference in the music itself? Totally. Absolutely. What, we, what you're thinking about of, of music is Western music. Like pop music today, that's mm-hmm. evolved from Western tonal music. Like the music of Mozart, Beethoven, Bach came from that. And then there are other musical traditions from around the world, Middle Eastern traditions, African traditions, uh, Indian classical traditions, um, Jap- Japanese, Chinese. And these artists, a lot of them, some of them at least, incorporate the music from their homes. Like particularly, you hear it a lot in, in um, Middle Eastern countries, their, their popular music it sounds, it sounds very Middle Eastern because um, they're using vocal technique and styles of their area. That's what they were you know, brought up but um, in terms of singing their own. But of course they've been exposed to American music is all over the world. It's been imperialized. <laughs> and people have adopted those influences as well. Hmm. The so. largest empire the world's ever seen. It's true. I wonder if that's worrisome to that people may lose the the influences of previous culture due to... That's why we're at war! I mean, I guess that's true. <laughs> There's a field of musicology called ethnomusicology, which is entirely... The ethics of, or the Ethnics. Ethnics. <laughs> Ethnic musicology. Yeah. Luke is entirely uh, about um, preserving music of the past and, and traditional music. Yeah. That was one of the main reasons the Taliban uh, started going after the United States is because they felt like their people were coming too westernized. Uh, specifically, like with blue jeans, that was a big deal to him. Wow, it's, it's crazy to think that blue jeans are something so controversial. <laughs> they certainly do represent America, and you know you can impose that meaning on it. it well, it comes from America. Well, yeah, I mean, it is the most probably one of the most popular or most purchased pant. In yeah, I mean, most one of the most popular pants in the yeah in the world in the world that it yeah. Where does it come from? It comes from California gold miners <laughs> painted for gold in was California. An Austrian was Levi Strauss an Austrian? I so yes, I went to one of the concerts when I was in Europe. I had no idea who he was. Well, it wasn't him. It was like, Strauss. It was maybe. Or it was Johann Strauss. Strauss. I don't know. Levi Strauss would be the person behind Levi Jeans. Yeah, sorry. I got heard Strauss. Strauss I was like, this is what it is. Yeah. I remember that name. What do I remember Even in music from? history, there are way too many Strausses. Sorry. <laughs> you went to Austria and you heard a concert with a Strauss on the program? Mm-hmm. He, cool. like, I'm not sure if it was a, a Strauss's music or uh-huh. if he was a Strauss, but he spoke German. <laughs> oh, cool. I have no idea what he was saying. Yeah. I was sitting in the audience like... All right, man, let's hear it. <laughs> but, but whenever I was in Europe, like uh, something that like kind of tied into the Taliban and everything, like um, people would bring shirts. Not the people I was with, but people that had been there, I would bring shirts with English written on them to sell to the locals because English was synonymous with wealth, and they it was like a more uh, way to just display your social status. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Like that was uh, another reason that the Taliban and Middle Eastern people dislike us because, of course, they think we have multiple gods that were polytheistic, which, of course, huh. Christians today know that's not the case because there's these, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, they see. treat that as three gods. We treat that as one. Yeah. Um, then another reason is that uh, in more in the call the olden times, um, I'm thinking like, uh, for example, Darius the Great was considered a businessman, which <laughs> then was very degrading. That, oh, they touched money, something that is so dirty. That's why you see businessman mercant- mercantilism. Nope. 
merchants, sorry, merchants at the bottom of the category, just above slaves, most likely, um, is because they were dealing with money, even though today we see that as, you know, fantastic people, like businessmen's one of the most sought after. People hated the Jews? Yes. Um, So that is, um, so Darius the Great was seen that way in a negative light, but today, who would we consider Darius the Great? We would consider him to be like the CEO, like today he would be fantastic, and be very successful. Yeah. Um, but that, those are just a couple of reasons why where it's like a, a cultural clash in the Middle East. This is why we've had problems for so long. Yeah. And they also had a few not-so-great dictators. True. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Back to what you guys were saying. <laughs> That's, That's really interesting about Darius the Grand. I know that. Yeah, he was very unpopular amongst his people. Wow. He had to quell a lot of rebellions. Well, he killed Bardia. That was a big deal. Bardia was the Bardia? second son to Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great had two oh, yeah. cons, St. Cambyses the second. Cyrus the Great was Cyrus the yeah. second, of course. And then Cambyses the second, which was Cyrus's grandfather, uh, died about seven years into his term. And then, but so the way Cyrus the Great did it, which is kind of dumb, he had gave Cambyses the second all of the Persian Achaemenid empire i can't say the second word very well but um and then he gave barnia this little section and just like you know what this is yours um you take care of it all the taxes go directly to you so he was just trying to um uh suddenly uh fuse that they would later have then campiases was killed so they gave it to of course bardia but this body at this point Bardia was killed by Cambyses II, his brother, supposedly. So then this Bardia that took power was not the real Bardia, so we think, maybe. It's really ambiguous, so no, no, no. So Darius the Great either killed the real Bardia or killed an imposter in Bardia. He thinks he killed an imposter, but he Uh, may have killed a real one. Depends on if Cambyses II was actually ruthless enough to kill his brother. So then, in order, Darius the, the Great uh, eventually became the Great. He wasn't the Great at the time, but he had to reconnect his, himself to... He was just the okay. He was just the okay <laughs> way to the Great. <laughs> uh, he had to uh, marry into Cyrus's bloodline. So he married the sister to whom the brother that she, he just killed. So he married Cyrus the Great's daughter to tie himself back into the family line. Wow. I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. I'm done with my rant. You I guys can do whatever you want. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Another rabbit hole there, might be. But uh, school politics is crazy, man. Yeah. For real. I hate today like, they just stand across the stage and throw mud at each other yeah. or poo at each other, and it's like <laughs> back then they'd be like, nope, let's just uh, we'll stab each other for it. Whoever stabs the best wins. If you're given a prophecy that you'll die surrounded by your friends, you'll be standing in the middle of the Senate with a bunch of knives in you. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting things about Caesar is that yeah. he, that's, he was given that prophecy. Supposedly, of course, you know. Even a couple hundred years ago, you know, they settled the what was it? Uh, was it Hamilton? Hamilton no. and Burr. Hamilton and Burr were in. A, Hamilton was killed by Burr in a duel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but he also wanted to secede from the Union way before it was popular. Uh, he was crazy. Which one, Hamilton or Burr? Burr. Yeah. He tried to lead several Didn't he rebellions. Did he flee to Kentucky? After Maybe that? briefly, but okay. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Sure. They, not, not for not long term. Not long term, yeah. but I think he did. Huh. You'll never need to know that, but just in case you're on some random trivia show. <laughs> I still think we need to have things settled by duel. That should be a totally legal way to settle things. <laughs> Why? Why not? Funerals are expensive. <laughs> Who's paying for that? And they were using... Um, Flintlocks, yeah, or whatever. and now we've got pistols that are a little more accurate. Well, I mean, I know, I'm down with the muzzle loader pistol. Yeah, like, we'll, okay, yeah, we'll be pirates about it. You know? 
I mean, if we want to start thinking, teaching swordsmanship in school, we can have like fencing duels. But if you guys haven't heard it, broadswords in a pit by uh, Dirty Jobs guy. Mike Rowe. By Mike Rowe. He has a podcast called The Way I Heard It, and it is a fantastic one. I'm not going to tell you which person has uh, orchestrates the duel, but it's a very interesting listen if you guys are interested in that sort of deal. But. You should teach swordsmanship so when lightsabers come out, we all know how to use But if you have a gun... <laughs> Lightsaber's not going to do you a whole lot of good unless you have the force, so you got to invent, invent that first, or alongside. We'll, we'll start getting Elon Get those Musk on the Mandalorians. Yeah. <laughs> Elon Musk will figure it out in like six seconds. That's right. He's already working on the, the Neuralink, so oh, that's wow. what it's going to be. But I don't think he understands how the Neuralink works, and that's, that's the thing that frustrates me. Like, you can't just shock the brain repeatedly and hope for a good result. Like That's that's not going to be Sounds, a good idea. I'm, sign me up. I mean, yeah, I'm all for it. Like, I, I'm willing to try it, but it just doesn't sound likely. I'm not trying it first. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm definitely not first on board for that train. But you know what? I'll get on the train eventually. <laughs> all right, guys. I apologize, but we went way down the rabbit hole yeah, on that one. We are... Uh, uh, so what did you do after interlocking? <laughs> oh, I think... Yeah. We were at Curtis. Yeah, we were at, I went to this... We got to Curtis. And um, very small school... A uh, lot of opportunities for composers there because there were only five of us. Oh wow! And um, the, not to toot my own horn, but the acceptance rate is a two percent acceptance rate, lowest in the world or country. Let's just say country. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was just on the wait list at first and got in, and so glad I was able to go to this another bizarre, weird place with some where was this one in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And you meet Will Smith? Square. No. <laughs> I never got to meet him. I was very disappointed. <laughs> I was ensured that he would be there. <laughs> Born and raised. Out, backs and relaxing all cool. Shooting some outside of school. He wasn't. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe shooting outside of court or something. Uh, but, but I digress. <laughs> really um, lucky. Lucky to go there. And I was there for five years for my undergrad, my uh, bachelor's, which you, it's a very weird place. You can stay as long as you, at that time, you could stay pretty much as long as you like. And um, so I stayed an extra year. And the academics were not as good as interlocking. <laughs> they were music school classes that were incredible. And, but the, I also took literature courses and to complete my uh, bachelor's. And some history courses. The history courses were quite good, but um, the focus was just on. You could just focus on your major. For me, composition. And um, so, if you got an F in the literature course, it doesn't wasn't a big deal. And I did once. I'm not <laughs> not happened. Not uh, proud of it. It just happened. Um, but it was the culture of the school kind of fell into that. Um, they didn't care if it wasn't music related. Yeah. As long as yeah, I was on top of all my music stuff, um, my writing. And the great thing about Curtis is the performers are uh, world class. No other educational institution of music has performers at that level. Uh, it was free. I should mention that. The entire undergrad education is free. <laughs> they have like a, a very large endowment and then just a small student body so that they can offer full tuition scholarships to everyone and offer grants for living and 
people all from around the world, a lot of Asian students, China, Korea, um, um, and some European students, and a lot of American students, Canadian as well. Um, wherever classical music tradition is strong, or the ed- education of it is popular, like in those countries. Um, so not a lot of Central American students, but there were some. There was a Chilean harpsichordist. Oh. <laughs> wow. Talk about striking the double... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> rarity, double rarity. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can call someone from Beijing, China a rarity. No, but, but a Chilean, Chilean harpsichordist. Oh, Char- okay. I thought you meant Chilean. like his with his roommates. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. No, Sorry. The double bass. That was the last. But one of the one of the weird things about another weird thing, there was no dorm, there was no cafeteria, so I lived by myself for the f- first four years. I was so there for five. Last year I lived with a roommate, but you had to cook for yourself or make or go get the food. But I lived several blocks away. Philly blocks were large to me back then. Um, like thirteen minute walk, I think. Um, but. Well, it happens. You're living alone. You're living alone. Yeah, it was very, it was didn't very lonely. Mother. And again, I, w- I was gonna, um, I was going to go to another school. I was gonna leave this place, so I wanted to go to University of Michigan, where all my friends were. And I applied. I interviewed. I got in. But before I did, I was asked what my decision was. I hadn't even heard back, and I was like, "Well, I guess I'm not going." And I'm glad I did stay, but I did, wasn't given much of a choice by my teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it works there, your private teacher is pretty much your dean. They're like the they control a lot of your education. And um, yeah, Curtis was was bizarre, mm-hmm. but bizarro world for yeah. education. After that, I went to Juilliard. Which was also a conservatory, but about 400, 800, 600 students, I think, something like that. Um, mostly music students, but that was when I had to, they really kicked my ass when in, academically. So I had to like actually go to class <laughs> <laughs> and work at it and then, you know, keep up with my comp- composing and, and private lessons with there as well. And this was in New York? New York City, yeah. And my, my teacher was a guy named Christopher Rouse, who was my absolute favorite living composer at the time, and pretty much to today, although he passed away seven or eight months ago. Oh. Um, but he was a composer who, who, in the 80s, he wrote music of such visceral energy. It's a, it's a wild ride. His music <laughs> is nuts. And I remember the first time I heard it was at, at Interlochen, and it blew me away. Like, I didn't know music could sound like that. It was hmm. unbelievable. Um, and so I, he was my idol, and I strove to be like him as a composer. Um, and I was able to study with him finally at Juilliard. And I was like, badass. That was so cool. I loved it. He was, um, we got along really well as well. Um, always good. You know, you always hate to like, oh, you go meet your idols, and then yeah. they suck, and you're like, oh, well, this is Incredibly disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> My lessons with him were amazing, awesome. He would give uh, some of it. We'd, we'd talk about half the lesson. We'd talk about my music, and the other half we'd talk about life. And also, he would give me listening assignments every week. 
So his big thing was maintaining curiosity, never becoming complacent in your knowledge, knowing that there's always more. Do you know who that sounds like? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. On the podcast. He is the Neil deGrasse Tyson of composition. Neil deGrasse Tyson is mentioned. Check one for Is that right? Every episode. Oh, boy. Just about. Just about. Sometimes we bring him up for him because he's like, I wasn't going to bring him up this episode. I'm like, I tried really hard not to. He's like, yeah, we'll help you out. You did good. Rouse would probe your knowledge. Say, okay, what do you know by this composer? He's like, oh, you don't know anything. This, 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 this. Like, I didn't even know you wrote those pieces. Okay, well, you're this week. You're going to listen to those with the score, and we're coming back, and we're going to talk about them. But my first semester, he's like, he looked at me long and hard, kind of stroked his beard. He's like, Stephen, we're going to focus just on composers whose names begin with S-C-H. So every week I got a composer with whose name started with S-C-H, and there were so many more that I knew. First or last name? Last name. Yeah. Schock, Sch, uh, Schnitke, Schomburg, Schumann. Asian and European people, I would assume. Lots of Germans. Yes. Lots of Germans. Germans, probably several Russian. Yeah, exactly. Schnitke and Schomburg. German and Russian. <laughs> but that, for a while, I was like, why did he... Is he just doing that to like make my life difficult mm-hmm. or annoying? And I think it was to drive home that point that the repertoire and the world of music is vast, and um, just that you can focus it down to people whose names yeah. start with S C H, <laughs> and the difference is so broad. Yeah, and there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces by people with those initial and those nay letters in their name and they're all different and <laughs> it's true. And they are most likely probably not you know, classical anyway. They're probably not even looking at modern Yeah. It, all styles. Of, you know, it's crazy. That you know, there'd be so many it's it's a vast artscape. There's so much and then, uh, you know, you say never lose curiosity, but I don't know how you ever could because there's, <laughs> there's just no such thing as the end of or the beginning of music that. or musical knowledge. It's Idols typically stifle it. Parents mm. stifle yeah. curiosity in children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we spend the first few years of children's life teaching them to walk and talk and the rest of them to tell them to shit down, sit down and shut up. <laughs> Shamefully true. Mm. That's a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote. Neil deGrasse Tyson is bitching. So, um, yeah, Rouse was a big, big influence on me, and then he did not disappoint as a teacher. Which is fantastic. You yeah. Know, that's just awesome. But He was super cool. Wonderful, giving, intelligent, like, just the brain of an encyclopedia. He knew every piece that ever been written it seemed like so riddle me this how do you define intelligence especially in a person oh because yeah. like it's obviously can't be how much you know because you know we have children who are perceived to be geniuses yeah um well i think oftentimes has to do with how you communicate um your 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 knowledge and you can be very intelligent and not be a good communicator but i'm calling him in super intelligent because he was able to communicate to me his vast depth of knowledge which was encyclopedic. 
And so he's able to take his knowledge, compact it, and then yeah, expand. Okay. That's how he's able to express to me his intelligence. But very well. Um, I you know I don't know how you. That's that's a question I've struggled with for a long time. Like I, I don't know. I don't know. He asks that one a lot. Nobody ever has a good answer, <laughs> which is annoying. Because like my my answer is just like I always know it when I see it. You yeah. Know? yeah. How do you know intelligence? You I mean, like you know, you could take the. Uh, IQ test or whatever and you get an idea but you know it doesn't necessarily test like artistic ability which I think requires a lot of intelligence yeah. to an extent but we will talk about different something. types of intelligence like yes. social intelligence like emotional social intelligence emotional is huge intelligence and things yeah. like that yeah I mean but a lot of emotional intelligence I think is, is kind of common sense like you know well not not all of it but it can be it can be intuitive it. right yeah mm-hmm. it's that's what I mean by common sense something that's more yeah, intuitive yeah. which is hard to teach yeah <laughs> I Which is something I was curious too. How do you teach somebody composition music? <laughs> yeah, what does a composition lesson look like? Yes. Um, I also teach composition right. myself, and I've never taught someone who didn't already know how to compose something. Right. So there's a bit of innate, like first it has to be you have to be want it. You have to want to compose. It's yeah, not you have easy. To see, it seems that there has to be a certain level of self study before you even can begin to yeah. have lessons but it seems like at that point uh, why yeah oh well there's a lot um there's a lot of that the relationship between student composer and student teacher is one of collaboration so your student teacher i'm sorry student composition composer teacher student composer the composer teacher is um is collaborating with the student on their music, like talking them through things, asking them questions. They mean, have you thought about this? Um, but it's they are the ones who have to do the work. The student composer is the one who has to write it, and the teacher should not be there, like saying, "Well, this should be an A flat." Right. Clearly, so it's more of <laughs> just. Uh, <laughs> and do you think that often? <laughs> do you care to mention that specifically? Uh, but uh, so is it more? I mean, I guess it's more of just trying to make them expand their look on. You could do literally anything yeah. as this next thing, and it's just how you think it flows within your piece of totally. music and connecting it to logic, like what should come next yes you can go absolutely anywhere but where what has come before dictates perhaps what can come in the future now you want to be surprised you don't want everything to be predictable mm-hmm. so that's something to also consider um, but you I often tell my students let their ear guide them because that's what makes their music theirs it's mm-hmm. guided by their intuition and their musicality so um, yeah it's a really interesting it's not like any other lesson like, it's not like an instrument instrumental lesson at all it's it's more like a, it's a conversation between it's two more of a free flowing learning environment in music as opposed to where like a, a instrument lesson would be more of a a strict and yeah. kind of there's be. only one way to key this note yeah. you have to hold these <laughs> particular buttons or this slide in the proper position and that's it well it's not to say that in, in music composition there aren't technical rules that mm-hmm. help guide but it's yeah less so than in instrumental lessons and that's why I think the relationship between uh, composer students and teachers is really a strong one because you it it can get really deep (laughs) into like what's going on in that person's life why can't you write music right now like why didn't you write any music this week what's going on in your life and that you know it's almost like a life coach slash um, psychologist psychiatrist like therapist really 
and also a artist teacher and collaborator. It's a weird relationship. It's more of a teacher student dynamic that you would see in a, a philosophy from Greece. Yes. Than a traditional teacher student relationship and a you know academia most yeah. commonly defined. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And uh, yeah, that's something I like about it. Because it's interesting, lessons are interesting every time. They're always different. It's never the same thing. Okay, next student, we're going to learn how to yeah, key that A-flat. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's everyone is coming from a different place, and their music is always different. And they have different personalities, so they ask different questions. And It's really fun as a teacher to teach composition. And it's fun as a student. More stressful, though. Because <laughs> you're vulnerable, imagine. very vulnerable. Absolutely, especially seeing as how you know you just kind of have to be open and honest. Yeah. You can't really, you know, particularly why didn't you write any music? I didn't feel like it. Yeah. Okay, well, why? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel like it doesn't cut it. Yeah, I can't help you unless you give me some more specifics. Yeah. And that makes sense, but you know, it does leave you to be more vulnerable. And yeah, but there's more danger in the teacher-student relationship going to places they shouldn't still needs to be professional <laughs> so uh, you can't make someone so uncomfortable that it's damaging you don't want to make them uncomfortable at all but it's, right. sometimes you can't help it it's going to happen you can't avoid it but you want to try avoid it <laughs> do no harm is the first rule in medicine and in teaching it's actually not i learned that the other day oh really that is a falsehood hippocratic oath is not the first that it is not in the hippocratic oath really do no harm what is it then i don't know it's it's some variation of it okay but it's not that like it's not necessarily i, I forget what podcast i was like <laughs> no but only if it's less harm than is already inflicted <laughs> we don't do utilitarianism here um but no i was listening to a podcast the other day and he was just like i'd never looked into it so it might not be true but like he, he wouldn't have said it as if it, if it were likely. Okay. But anyway, I thought it was interesting. I don't know. I haven't taken the Hippocratic Oath. I haven't either. Yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> I try to follow You're the back. doctor here. What are you doing? <laughs> Falling down to your job. Uh, mm. So when you were at, what, what was your studies at Juilliard as far as, was that for your master's? Yeah, that was my master's. And it was, there were no non-music classes for the first time. They were all music focused, which I loved. But they were really hard. So is that, so you you mainly studied composition. Does there any what are the courses? Yeah. What is a course catalog for composition? There are some core music courses that all music students take, including ear training, oral skills also known as oral skills, so training your ears to understand what they're hearing, which is a really hard thing to teach and a really hard thing to learn how to do if you don't have that innately built into you. Um, which I didn't. <laughs> music history, so learning you know the place and the context of the music that you're playing. Because we play historical music. That's what a classical musician does, right? They're playing music from the past, always, and almost always. Um, at least those who go to Juilliard and Curtis. <laughs> um, they're just not that interested in new music. Many of them aren't. Um, then, Even personally, like on a uh, yeah. personal time or yeah. as a profession? Both, yeah. Hmm. Uh, the, the reason that modern music has put off a lot of performers is that they're asking them to do things they've never... 
It makes them sound not beautiful, which is what they've spent their entire life trying to make beautiful sound, beautiful noise on their instrument. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of modern composers ask them to do is to make a beautiful sound, but in a more um, subjective sense. So maybe the sound of air going through their instrument is something they want, or they want something that's screechy or something that is grating for this moment. And that can be anathema to some performers, a lot of them, because it just makes them uncomfortable, and I get it. But um, I think there's a lot of potential there and beauty there, and that's why, as a composer, someone who's writing living music, um, I think it's really awesome, and there's a lot of value there. But I also understand the apprehension towards it. And I think that's our job as composers to, to help. ease the apprehension. Yeah, yeah. Make it, like, give a good reason why this is an important for this music. Why, important for this expression. Not just to be grading, but why is it grading? So I looked up the Hippocratic Oath, <laughs> and the closest thing that it says to do no harm is that I will keep them, them being the patients, from harm and injustice. So that is the closest thing. It says, uh, like, I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it nor make the suggestion to this effect. Stuff like that. But it doesn't say anything specifically about doing no harm. Interesting. Yeah. You ever need to know that? It's an no, abbreviation. <laughs> Cliff notes for the Hippocratic <laughs> Oath. <laughs> Anywho, I wanted to share that. Anyway. Uh, poison yeah, in body you. purposefully. Yeah. I promise not to poison my students. And also Sports said something about no harm. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, if you, that's right. <laughs> well, like, if you consider, like, you know, you have to do open heart surgery stuff, sometimes you have to break some ribs, so like, you'd be kind of like, yeah. you know, misleading if you like do no harm and then technically harming the, yeah. you know, for yeah or down, like even the cutting part would be yeah yeah for the greater good. <laughs> the ends justify the means. But <laughs> that's a utilitarian versus Kantianism uh, philosophy there. Uh. <laughs> Oh, so I was finishing the, the core classes for all musicians. Aural skills, music history, and music theory. Theory being how music is put together, why these notes sound good together, and how to analyze music. Take it apart and describe it in words. Bring it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had all those kinds of classes at Juilliard. The hardest ones were the ear training classes because they just... It was drilling, and we had a, a teacher who was, she was in her early 80s, and she was old school, to say the least. She was old school because she was old. <laughs> <laughs> she was the, also the teacher that is a um, non-composition teacher that has left the longest lasting impact on me <laughs> as a teacher and as a musician. Cause so is that a positive or a negative? It's a little bit of both. Yeah, it was it was scarring. We like this, but not like this. <laughs> Scared the hell out of you. Then you had to be at attention. If you even slipped a little bit, you'd make a fool of yourself <laughs> in front of all these musicians that you want to work with and respect on their own abilities. But hmm. yeah, anyway. And now I teach these classes and still fear in my students. <laughs> no. Okay. Roll with an iron fist. <laughs> <laughs> Quantity is quality in itself. But, huh. I never, I, I'm curious. I'd almost like to see what an aural lesson yeah. sounds like or looks like. Yeah. Just to, well, here's what it involves. involves. There are two parts. Uh, one is oftentimes, well, I'll start with one that makes the most sense, is dictation. So, 
you hear something and can you then write it down in music notation. Now, what does you and, say music notation? Are you saying write it on the scale with yes, the notes? With the staff and, and note head stems and the correct clef um, and key and and there's a lot of there's a lot of theory that goes into dictation or that almost sounds impossible to do oh it's it's hard but you start really simply like we go stepwise going up one note down one note so you're just listening for directions to go up or as it go down and that's a lot easier than gauging the distance between notes the interval if it, mm -hmm. if it skips notes well then you have many more options it doesn't just go up but it just go up one two three four and eight you know ten <laughs> You have to train your ear to listen for those different distances then. But it goes by so quickly that you have to be, I mean, it's, it has to become a second nature. But dictation. So we do rhythmic dictation, just rhythm. That's often my favorite because I love talking about rhythm. And it's easier. It's more fun. And so you write down the rhythms. And then melodic dictation, a single line of music, a melody writing that down, which includes rhythm as well. So rhythm and pitch. Then there's harmonic dictation, which is hearing more than one melody or line at once, hearing vertical, verticalities. Those are the three parts of dictation. The other part of ear training is called is solfege, singing, performing with your voice in like, you know, everyone knows solfege from the sound of music, do a deer, a female deer, ray, a drop of golden sun. Right. Me, a name I call myself. Far, a long, long way to run. Soul, a needle pulling thread. This one is lame. La, a name to follow soul. <laughs> Tea, a drink with jam and bread. And that brings us back to do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, solfege, do, but there are many more syllables than this do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. There's inflections to those. So, reading it, a line of music and singing it in solfege, the solfege is there to aid the memory of pitch. So, do is, there are different systems to it, but sometimes do is home or do can be. Uh, name of C on the piano, uh, the key of C, and lots of other things. Anyway, we don't need to go into all of it right now. There's a lot. Uh, we don't have to get into the theory. Yeah, but so that's that's ear training, huh. and it's a, a workshop class. It's people are not s sitting uh, in there. There's a lot of interaction between the it's student like and the teacher. It's like a lab. For yes, it's a lab. Thing. Exactly, it is a lab. Hmm. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. It's hard for the student, but I enjoy it as a teacher. <laughs> Sucked when I took it. Right. <laughs> I love watching them cry in the corner. Oh, yes. It's my favorite. <laughs> if you really want to mess with them, you just start hitting random notes on the piano. Oh, I had a, a teacher do that to me. Oh, God. That was my interview at Juilliard. Really? An interview with each individual teacher. And oh. they had good cop, bad cop. The bad cop was scary. Like he's like, okay, he was uh, uh from Brooklyn. He's like, this is a law. This is a law. This is a. What note is this? Boom. Okay, what note is this? Do. <laughs> and this on the piano, Dif different keys all over the place, jumping up and down, and different huge distances. That was really hard. <laughs> How'd you do? 
It's, uh, I didn't well, think well, I was well. going to hint after that. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a different, I'm sure there's a different notation when you write it, but when you're saying something like that, a C on the middle mm. of the keyboard mm. versus a C on the top end yeah. of the keyboard, how would you distinguish the difference? There are how would you nine, I think nine A's mm-hmm. on the piano. Eight or nine. I don't know exactly. Each one is numbered. So oh. from the bottom to the top. The bottom A is zero. Then we have A1, A2, A3, A4. So middle C, the C in the middle of the piano is C4. So that gives you specifically that pitch, that frequency. Is there a reason you started zero and not one? Because, um, the yes, we start the musical alphabet starts with A, but the piano and, and most music, C is the one of the most important pitches. Because if you play every white key on the piano, in order to play a major scale, we start on C. And so white keys is where you always begin as a pianist, like learning. And I don't know if I can give any, I'm sure there are other reasons why. I'm not actually sure why we always, why C is more important than any other note. But that's why A is zero, because C1 mm-hmm. is the first C. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Hmm. So it doesn't start with C0. Yeah, so gotcha. exactly. So there's A0, B0, C1. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. That is strange, but incredible. So they would basically he would just add, you know, here's C four. Yeah, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He would didn't care which if you got which register, like which he wouldn't number. Care, he wouldn't care about your four as long yeah. as you could tell him it was the name C. of the note. Yeah. So C A sharp D A. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so we started throwing in black. Oh yeah. Too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that makes it the way you do that, of course, is gauge the interval between C and the next note. And then gauge the interval from that note to the next note, and then so you're doing all kinds of gymnastics, mental gymnastics. So if you screw up one, the rest of them are done for. Oh yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. He would tell you if you got it wrong, though. He's like, yeah. okay, now that's a B flat. Okay, what's this? Boom. Boom. What's this? Oh god. <laughs> now you're just guessing. I have no idea. Yeah, I was sweating bullets. Uh, yeah. But I, uh, I did well enough. Well enough. He always said, I had a number of interviews at Juilliard because I applied a couple times. First time, I got in every time. But uh, <laughs> but um, every time he did that, and it, I had always thought, like, well, I'm not getting in. It's like, well, you know, at Juilliard, we really expect more from our students. <laughs> God, why do you say that? <laughs> and he was the nicest guy once you met Once he wasn't the bad cop. Yeah, yeah. Once, he was, once you got in or once you were, the interview was over, he was very sweet. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> yep. What was there anything else that stood out to you about Juilliard other than getting to learn with your um idol? I guess, yeah. for lack of a better word, I probably shouldn't say, but um, Juilliard felt like a really impersonal, like a factory, a factory for musicians. Whereas Curtis and Interlock and there's more like a family of musicians. Hmm. And um, it, that's unusual. I learned when I went to Juilliard and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, about production. You know, being the, there's a lot of competition as well between students, which I just hate. It's not healthy. It's not creatively freeing to like be in competition with your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Which you know, that's more life. That's more realistic than than perhaps a family of musicians. But 
um, it's not as good of a learning environment. Particularly in an art field where there's, I've, I'm not a, not the, I'm not not a fan of competition, but in a field of art where it seems like a place for ideas to come together, less of science, more more or less a competition because it's factually provable. It's yeah. something that we can understand, and that is the importance of science. But where art seems like it should be the coming together of ideas to create something that is beautiful or enjoyable, or I guess you could make something ugly and call it art, but it's beautiful <laughs> to somebody, I suppose. Yeah. At least um, your mother, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if without competition, science wouldn't work as well as it does. Right. So, that's a good yeah. so it has benefits in the science field, but it seems strange to do that in the art field because yeah. that seems like a place where you would want people to bring new ideas or bring even old ideas to new situations to create and foster more interesting, more innovative, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But there's... Um, that's yeah, really interesting. I think with composition and creative art, yes, but then with performative art, like pianists and mm. singers, it's a little more. And there are a lot of competitions for pianists and right. singers. Right, I guess that goes back to more of a structured, you know, as that's more of a structured discipline of an art. Yeah. Then I guess that too. There are also competitions for composition, but and I've won a number of them, but the. Who who's judging? Who, yeah. If it, someone else was judging, there would be a totally different winner. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's entirely subjective. subjective. So, and I was really sad when I realized that. <laughs> how do you judge a composition? Yeah. I mean, for, really though, how do you judge a composition contest? Mm -hmm. Is it just do they play the music out and say, "Oh, I like this one better," or <laughs> his handwriting is much neater? Oh my god! Or, or is it just You're like? Uh, you know, well, let me play these notes in my head, which, you yeah. know, I'm sure they're able to do and kind of get a feel for what it sounds like. But Dusty, you hit on all of the things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, some competitions, you submit a recording. Some you don't. And so if you don't have a recording, that's great because you can just submit it anyway. And in those competitions, the, the composers that are looking at, or musicians that are looking at the music, you know, use their training to hear internally and the, to the best of their abilities. People do that better than others, and some people bullshit on it. And they can't really do it, and they pretend they do. <laughs> but some people really do have those kinds of ears. Mm -hmm. But then, so what else do you gauge it by? Well, if you have a better-looking score, if it's notated better, people are going to take it more seriously, and especially if that's all they have to go on. Right. So some competitions, if you, have a, if you don't know how to do notate it properly in the Western art tradition... Then you have a poorer chance of winning it, which is uh, not what I think composition is about. Composition is about the product, the music, right. not how it looks. Mm. And it can be beautiful. It is beautiful on the page, but that's not the point. <laughs> I, right. Not to I me. Mean, no, I mean absolutely. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's it's like judging the technique of a painter yeah. versus the overall <laughs> outcome of his work. You yeah, know? his brushstroke here was absolutely perfect, but this person's was. Just throwing paint on the canvas. Pop. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean that is, you know, that's interesting. That 
I, mean, I guess I never would have, I never thought about it until now that they would do competitions with <laughs> such subjective I'm, judging. I'm interested that, that your your um, perception of what it would be like is so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get there's only so many ways you can judge it, and yeah. it's either you played it out and it was good, or you imagined what it sounded like, which. Whether they got it right or wrong, I guess depends on how you how well you notate. But I guess that's part of composition, so I yeah, guess that makes is. sense. But yeah. <laughs> so, how long were you at Juilliard? Only two years. At master's program, just did two years there, and then I stayed in New York for five more years teaching. Like, well, I didn't know not all five years, but I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, I'm just going to find a job. Doing so something would push you towards the doctorate. Well, um, what happened was I did, I, I did a couple weird jobs. Like I worked for a music publisher as a music database analyst, where I just entered metadata on different recordings for their database, and which was a really fun job. And I was really because a really prestigious publication or publishing house called Boosie and Hawks, and I was so like I was my teacher. Christopher Rouse, it was published by them and so many other composers I revered. So, but I did, it was a temporary job and I didn't love it. Didn't love working in an office, didn't love working in the publishing industry. So, I started teaching. I, I had friends in the music, in music academia, so um, I was able to get my foot in the door at a couple um, educational institutions in New York and got jobs there. And I realized that I loved teaching and I wanted to do more of that and I wanted to make a living with it so I needed to get that terminal degree either you become a super famous composer and they eventually offer you a job without a doctorate <laughs> and or give you, you an honorarium yeah <laughs> or you get a doctorate and you start applying and you do the the legwork and the difficult work and I also wanted to learn more I knew there's more that I didn't get at Curtis and at Juilliard and I wanted to go to a real university because um, <laughs> before I'd Which only I been to conservatories. It's like the first, it was really the first yeah. university that you had attended. Some my friends say it's my first real school that I actually went to. <laughs> Since freshman year on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I started applying to places. My first time I applied, I only applied to like one place. I wanted to go to Yale. Did not get in. <laughs> I played at Yale a number of times and never, they just, we weren't a good match. So I never even got an interview at Yale. And that made me, like every other place, I'm so spoiled. Every other place I got interviews and got into. But Yale, they're like, no. <laughs> I'm so bitter. All right, was. Um, but I ended up going a year later, applying to a bunch of others and got into a few of them. And I decided I wanted a big change. So I'd been living in Philadelphia and New York and Michigan, and Kentucky, everything east of the Mississippi. I glad I'd try something different and went to University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And I've been there the last five years and uh, completed my DMA, Doctor of Musical Arts there. It was the hardest thing I've ever done academically. Classes were incredibly difficult. The exams, like if we a doctor of music works in at USC, it's different in a lot of different places. But um, you have coursework, years of coursework, and then you have your exams. You have to pass your exams, and then you complete your dissertation and defend it. 
So how does that process? Because I've heard that is absolutely hell. Well, for a composer, it's a little different. What is absolute hell are the exams. I did that in the fall of 2019, and uh, that was that was the pinnacle of difficult academic work. I'd never been so stressed out, so nonstop working all day, every day. That's all I did was study, 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 and, and write papers at, about yeah, from different uh, theoretical and analytical perspectives. Um, and then, so you, what the way it's kind of com, uh, convoluted, but here the exam process. You have at USC, you choose a minor field. Yeah, I'm a composer, a composition major, but my minor field was theory and analysis. Then you choose two elective fields, and I chose instrumental conducting and music teaching and learning because I wanted to teach. And I thought, hey, it'd be good to know how to teach. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> helps. Yes. So took a lot of all my coursework was on those three things and composition, and then some core basic things that every student has to take. But then my exams were a theory exam and a theory paper, which is essentially what my written dissertation would be. I have no written dissertation, no verbal document. My actual dissertation is a piece of music. Thank God. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I wrote a, pe- a, pace, a piece of... Pe- I wrote a paper on a composer named Paul Ruders, a Danish composer, still alive. Highly recommend you check out some of his music. It's... My, the paper I wrote was on was called the Solar on a piece called the Solar Trilogy, three pieces written by Paul Ruders about the sun. So the first is called Gong, and it is about the the inner workings of the sun, the life of the sun from the, its birth to its death. And this piece is about thirty minutes, and in that those thirty minutes, it goes through the life cycle of the sun in so an like orchestral each setting. Each element does it start doing something different? Like as soon as it starts burning iron, does it do something? Because that'd That's, be really cool. Yeah, it, the thing is. We don't have a lot of of much, much written by the composer about the piece itself. We have a few statements, which I was able to find, and then miraculously I was able to figure out how he musically put it together. But in terms of how it relates to the science, all I can see is the life cycle of the sun described in different activity. Man, that had so much potential for me. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, it's the, sci- the science is there, it's just it's buried deeper than I could find it. You'll just have to listen, and you can apply a theory of music to it, and you can, there you go. There's a project for you. Figure out how the sun works. So Gong is about that life cycle of the sun. The second movement is called Zenith, which is about the sun's uh, path across the sky across the day, from sunset to sun, sorry, sunrise to sunset. And as a Dane... um, there's a strong connection between Danish music and Danish composers and that idea of the sun tracing across the sky. Many composers in Denmark have written pieces about that. So it's, it's like part of a history of music of Denmark. It's beautiful. It's very slow and it's gorgeous. Uh, and it comes to a climactic moment that is noon and then it descends and, and the activity dies away and it kind of starts where it began at sunset. And then the third movement is called Corona, and it is the it is a depiction of a, of an eclipse, so total solar eclipse, and it's unbelievable. Oh my gosh, this piece is it's an experience. Thirty minutes. I wouldn't call it an enjoyable piece of music. It's not beautiful until the very end. It's annoying, 
but the experience of listening to it and getting through it, it's it's a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Get, the experience of getting through it is so rewarding. Oh, my gosh. It's what he does. What, the point is to annoy you at certain points, to make this so uncomfortable. But then the payoff is, oh, it's worth it. It's gorgeous. So oh God. do you know how, like, I'm sorry, the first one is the one that interests me the most. Like, how yeah. how did now he... Now I want to listen to the third one. <laughs> I, don't, like I don't like class. being annoyed. Uh, it's 90 minutes, t- minutes total, the whole thing, Solar Trilogy. How did he depict the sun ending? Like you say that it ends, but how Is did it? Calm? Oh. <laughs> no, but did it end in a black hole and a supernova and a white dwarf? And did he uh-huh. did he extend the white dwarf's life until forever? Because that know, song would go on for forever. I you know I don't remember, and I looked into this and mm-hmm. I wrote a paper on it. God damn it! <laughs> and I I don't remember. It's been a while since I wrote it, and I forget how it ends. Honestly. Um, because like it shouldn't have enough mass to fall into a white dwarf, although that would be the coolest. Uh-huh. However, like you know, a supernova. What happens if that happens? Well, like you know, the Earth and everything was still spinning around. It. Like it was just be super hot, but a white dwarf it takes forever to die. It's one of the last longest lasting things in that we know of in all existence. Black hole it outlasts a lot of black holes because you know Hawking radiation stuff. That's a big deal. Anyway, so like hey, <laughs> Hawking radiation is now. <laughs> Hawking radiation. Long story you short. You don't have the time or the crayons to explain this to me. <laughs> Whatever, fine. No crayons. Better. It's fun. Um. <laughs> anyway, never mind. I don't forget that what I was going to say. I read that this morning. I don't have the time or the crayons to explain this to you. <laughs> one thing, if I can just. T- I, one thing I have to mention about this whole Absolutely. experience that I'm so proud of because it took so much time to figure it out. Um, Paul Ritter's is influenced by a type of, of English bell ringing. Like uh, belfries, um, large bells that are being pulled by rope and activated that way. It's, it's called English change ringing and is a mathematical uh, sequence of ordering a number of bells, literal bells, in, in ways that they don't repeat. Every time you, you can go through this sequence mathematically and it will never repeat the same sequence. Um, so for instance, Let's say we have bells one, two, three, four, five, and six. So the next sequence will start with um, we'll we'll exchange every other pair. So one and two are switched. So two, one, four, three, six, five. Instead of one, two, three, four, five, six. Then the third row will be one and six will stay in their outside positions. And then you'll switch the inner pairs. So one. Three, two, thank you. And then five, five and four, six. six. Yes, we got your back here. <laughs> but then the next one, they, they, they swear they they, they switch um, adjacent pairs again, and it goes through until we reach the last one, which is six, five, four, three, two, one, reverse. Hmm. And so for rooters, a bell is not a single note, but a a motive, a collection of notes. It could be one note, it could be four notes, it could be six notes grouped together. And so it goes through this way of permutating different strains and sequences. So you never have something that repeats and patterns are not discernible because it's always moving in, in, in this mathematical way, but you don't hear that. It's linear. So we can see it in a block. We can look at the numbers and see how they relate to one another and what the pattern is. But when you hear it linearly, <sighs> Who knows? <laughs> well, how long is a bell? So infuriating and so yes, frustrating. Yes, the corona, corona, the, that movement is the best example of it. It's all English 
change ringing. My God. Interesting. <laughs> and that's just one type of English change ringing. That's called forward hunting. But there's plain bob as another sequence, another way of organizing them. And You should check out English change ringers online on YouTube. It's unbelievable. They're, the sequences, they just do this in their heads. Each person has a single bell, and they're doing this in live time, but they're doing it mentally and internally. It's pretty cool. Wild. Anyway, I wrote a paper on that. <laughs> we skip to the end. <laughs> the final part of your exams is an oral exam with the composition faculty. And you chose six pieces of music throughout music history, different genres, different time periods. You learn everything there is to know about them, their context and their repertoire. Theoretically, how are they put together formally? How is it laid out structurally, etc.? And then you go and you give a presentation, and then they ask anything. And it could be about that piece. It could be how this piece relates to this other piece, which you didn't look at. So how can you react? How can you respond in live time to these questions? So are they trying to screw you up with it? Right. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes no. Sometimes, yeah, they want to see what how you react. And the point is to see if you're ready to work with graduate students who have all, who have all kinds of questions that you may not have the perfect answer to, but can you give them useful information that will help them? So that's the exams. And that was so stressful and so hard. <laughs> Passed them. And then dissertation was the easiest thing. Really? I know how to write a piece of music. <laughs> <laughs> I did before I even got into the school, right? So did you have to defend it? Yes. And what is it's very your piece of music? Yeah, it's a creative about? work. So they're not saying, oh, this can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> you just talk about it as colleagues, really. Mm -hmm. It was so unstressful. Yeah, the, the first person I talked to about that, they said it was absolutely, he was a... Uh, he was getting his doctorate in like uh, old in the Old Testament, so like they wow. they were growing him. So that's that's. Why would probably. you want to be a doctor of that? <laughs> he was a minister. I don't know. Yeah. So I, mean, I assume it would help to an extent. A lot of, to learn, I bet. That sounds anyway. interesting. That's how I got that information. <laughs> and then at the end of all this, I got to become a doctor in my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> my little fuzzy cap. Graduations. I, I just want to become, I want to get my doctorate so I can have the cool fuzzy cap. Yeah, that was, the, I couldn't wait for that. Yeah. I was, so, I was like, that's why I'm doing this. Well, when I, when, when I, so I've never, I'd never noticed, uh, but when we were at graduation, the last time I was at graduation, uh, I noticed that they were wearing different hats. And I was like, why do you get different hats? My hat was just square. Yeah. yeah. I want a cool hat. I want the beret. Like, yeah. Interesting. It's because you're a different level of education. I did not know that. So now I want a doctor just so I can have a fuzzy hat. But when yeah. would you ever wear it again? Like, you, do you plan on going to a bunch of graduations? Maybe. Maybe. Just show off. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it. I showed up to your high school like, graduation in my doctorate hat. Uh. This is where you should be one day. Yeah, you I, I, just I, around town. I'm sure at some point graduation ceremonies will become boring and redundant, but I'm still very excited by them. And as a professor, I will have I will have the op option to attending them every year. I'll get to wear my fuzzy cap every year. At least you have the option. Yeah, <laughs> most places don't necessarily do that. But that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Until the next pandemic, and then I'll be doing it in my bedroom again. <laughs> You can like not to go to that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sleeping in on me. this one. Yeah. yeah. Not zooming in today. Take that. 
so from this path from 15 to now such long and a lot of hard work is there anything that you would change and if so how would you do it hmm. it's a tricky question to answer because um, I wouldn't be where I am today which I'm very happy I haven't always been happy but I'm happy now how do you define happiness oh well <laughs> um, I I'm not only my enjoy what do I do every day work I enjoy I think I, I enjoy the prospect of where I'm headed and where what I can accomplish in the future because of where I've been so do you think you're content with that or I'm content contented but I'm also um, and that doesn't make me I'm not done yet either see that that's something I was thinking about like whenever like you know if someone says says that they're happy are they done it's like because like, if you're if you're you know happiness is something that we all intrinsically seek so if it's something that we do so without if we have that happiness and get that complacency are we still striving so that's that's part of my like of course we all want to be happy but then does that make kind of what you're saying are we done yeah no I, I think also um, it, you can't always I, <laughs> Life is, you're never happy all the time. And that's not what life is. And if you're striving for that, for pure happiness all the time, it's just not going to be achievable. But you, you want it, you know, perhaps as much as possible. You just broke my dreams. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, life is hard. Hard work and things you can't control. And I hope everyone has, you know, the most enjoyable, least painful life possible. But... That's it's futile. I think. so don't strive for that. Strive for um, things. An will, overall joy. Yeah, things will will give you happiness, but keeping your options open and minds open. So from here, what do you what do you hope to accomplish? Oh, I can't wait to work with students the rest of my life and to continue to learn and write music and work with musicians. I'm still a composer. I still write music, still teach composers. I want to teach more composers. I love teaching. I love giving back and to people who are interested and want to learn about something I love and I think has incredible value, music and particular Western art music. And I, I, I'm always learning about other types of music, but that's not where my um, uh, education is, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So I'm just excited for... Um, learning and and teaching and learning. Okay, that's fair. So, I, I, this is going to be kind of a weird question, but I'm curious nonetheless. So, why do you think you're able to accomplish such an, a monstrous goal? Well, like, do you think it's, well, of course it's going to be a combination, but what do you think it's more so? Do you think it was more so a hard work and determination? Do you think it was more so of like uh, a status in the society? Like what, what pushed you and what helped you accomplish this? Well, I would be nowhere without support from everyone in my life, particularly my parents and family, friends. I, you know, I took a lot of financial risk on my parents' part, on my own part, um, and I, that, without, first of all, without that, I would not be where I am today. I'd be somewhere else, but I don't know what that would be. Maybe I would be equally happy. Maybe I would be a mess. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I, I, yes, I, I did a lot of work, but it's not, that's definitely not even half of it. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all of the support and the people around me that allowed me to, to, be happy today, or at least with where I am. That's great. 
I do have one question, like off topic, that I really want to ask because I want you guys to know. And I'm done. I'm sorry. I know you guys are getting irritated, but uh, <laughs> so it is not this time. It is not this time. <laughs> so like, this is something I was thinking about the other day, and I just I don't know. I want to, I want to know what other people think. So like, um, oh God, where to write the question down at? Okay, yeah. So what are the implications do you all think when the when the Chinese economy overtakes the United mm. States? Because you know the United States overtook Britain, the former you know financial capital of the world. That you know they they had the freedoms of trade that the United States exercises today with you know influence all over the world and so on and so on and so forth. So when the United excuse me, when China overtakes the United States, do you think they the yuan? What is the currency? The yen. Is it the yen? Yuan. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever the currency is. Um, yeah. We say yen. I don't know if that's how it's actually pronounced. Fair enough. We're American and white, so, <laughs> so we don't care if we get things from America. So, yeah. We call it Louisville and Versailles, yeah. Kentucky. Oh, God. Versailles. Versailles. <laughs> Louisville. So, I love this. I love saying that. Right? That's the Kentucky yeah. accent. Louisville. It's the difference in saying Louisville and Louisville. <laughs> That's it. And for sales instead of Versailles. Mm-hmm. So what will so happen to this, this country? Or yeah. what, do you think, what do you think the implications would be? Well, I mean, if something happens to this country at this point, the entire world's affected. Yeah. We're still under impact of the coronavirus. So is the entire world economically. Well, what worries me, and yes, America is not perfect, but it is a place where the people have some amount of say over what its government consists of and how that government um, governs, at least by voting them in or out. And with a country like communist China, like the totalitarian... They're socialist. <laughs> totalitarian <laughs> dictatorship, essentially, <laughs> with President Xi, mm-hmm. um, I, that scares me. Because I believe, really? you know, this country prides freedom. We're not perfect. But freedom is a, is a, an absolute um, value that is enshrined in the Constitution and in the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. And I think there's something beautiful about that. Yes, it's, it falls short many times. But China's... I, it's more about the, the, the whole rather than the individual. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes... In the, it can make the individual's life more challenging... It's not that it. Eh, I don't know, man. So, but, well, like the very concept. Well, so yeah. the, the very concept of individualistic society is very, very new to the world. We like to think yeah. that it's old, but it's you know two hundred or so yeah. years old because you know the United States is one of the first societies. Two forty four. Forty four. Wow, we're yeah. getting on. <laughs> hey, I was challenged. <laughs> um, but you know, we were the first bicentennial. Is that what it's called? Huh? Two fifty. I don't know. I was curious no when I heard that the other day. Like what? I was that we were almost to two fifty. I wondered what it would be. Because bicentennial, I don't know. Tricentennial would be 300, right? What does sesquim mean? Half? I have no idea. It sounds about right. Sounds never, good to me. Never took Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody speaks it anymore. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, the United States was the first society to uh, place uh, rights in the individual's hands over the rights of the, the many. So, like, you know, collectivism is pejorative of bad in the United States, but if you look into the entire span of the human history, it's turned out very well for us. You know, I mean, well, we could, of course, we may have died out, but we don't know for sure what uh, an individual society would have looked over the course of, you know, nomads. Yeah. But, Dusty, what do you think the implications might be? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, what were the implications 
where the United States surpassed formerly Britain. Mm-hmm. I don't know what exactly changed. They lost their superpower status. Well, and so is China considered a superpower now? No, the United States is a sole superpower. So superpower is defined as being able to fight a two-theater two, two war and win both of them. Well, so then by that definition, the United States will never be surpassed as a superpower so long as the United Nations is in place. Because there is no military on force on the planet oh, that can rival. That's what I meant. Not NATO, not mm-hmm. the UN. But there's no military force that could rival the supreme firepower of the United States at this moment. Yeah, but this is an economic talk. But right. But so so the superpower never goes away, right? Because you know. I mean, Britain all but went away. Once the, in 1947, whenever they gave up their colonies, they lost a lot of economic power. Mm-hmm. So, but what if I were to drop this bombshell on you guys? <laughs> China's economy overtook the United States in 2014. Sweet. So, like, I don't know, it, all, it all depends on how you measure the GDP. If you do the nominal well, GDP, it's it's totally different. The United States is like double that of China. However, do the PPP GDP, which is. Uh, excuse me? It's like. PPP GDP, the GDP being the gross domestic product, the right. value and summarization of the value of the products and services that's offered in a nation. The PPP is like the purchasing power, right? Yeah. So it's like how much you can actually buy. So which, it's like the personal purchasing power of gross domestic products? Yes. Holy cow, that's <laughs> for the hell of a short for a while. PPP GDP? <laughs> it's probably a lot faster. Like Fewer syllables. Yes. <laughs> but, uh... But yeah, so the, basically the, that just means it's a lot. you can buy a lot more stuff in China. The cost of living is a lot cheaper than it would be in the United States as it translates to the, the uh, United States dollar. So I don't know, I found it very interesting that yeah. it's globally the United States is still more powerful than the GDP nominal, but in terms of in-state, it would be China that has overtaken the world's greatest economy. So then my real... Interesting. Uh, the economy is one thing, and militarily... I guess another, but intellectually, I wonder where the United States, where the United States ranks as far as innovation and developments. Well, um, without the patents, China has like stupid patent laws. Like they're not going to be able to sign anything. Like they, they use the copyright just sucks. So with the United States right, having the ability no of copyright, you, things are going to be developed in the United States over China. Right, China. exactly. That's what that's part of where I'm going with this is that intellectual property being not at all what it is in China. Basically, no such thing. Um, the United that alone could be the thing that keeps the United States in a power of position because where the innovation comes from tends to be the place that keeps that wears the mantle, if you will. You know, you have not only medical but uh, mechanical, electronic. I mean. The main, the major world companies are headquarters for research and development, typically in the United States. I would assume. I mean, Silicon Valley is arguably the greatest force for change in the world. As I'm not sure you can even argue that. I think that's just a demonstrable fact at this point. (laughs) Possibly. I mean, I'm saying possibly because maybe I lack the knowledge that there's somewhere else out there that's made some demonstrable change that I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it, as far as I can tell, Silicon Valley is probably one of the most influential places for change in the world. And 
as long as places like that stay in the United States, which they very well could not just because of economic changes, policy changes that people look to make in the future. I mean, if you take the tax rate up from whatever it is now and triple it, do those places stay? So that's where I get worried about things like that is because... So what's specifically wrong with Tesla? Hmm? You're thinking about specifically with Tesla? I mean, maybe, but that's a little different because uh, he moves from... Right, he moves from his headquarters from California to Texas. Mm -hmm. So the United States is not necessarily harmed by that, but if he moves from Texas to Mexico, then we lose a little bit of that power. And if Apple moves from California to Canada, and if GM Ford... Amazon. Amazon. I mean, any of these places decide, uh, United States is not the place for us. Now, where they're not as business friendly as they have been in the past, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to pay the taxes. Yes, they'll still operate here and there will still be jobs there. Maybe not as many, but they will still have warehouses and they'll still have distribution centers. But when the, when the, innovation when the innovation dries up when it moves to other places then I think that's where you start to worry about losing your status if it matters to you Mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't matter to you and you say as a globalist outlook it doesn't matter who the leader is as long as as long as we're freely trading yeah as long as we're freely trading and everybody is moving at the relatively same rate up the ladder mm-hmm. you know but on a, a more concise outlook if you look you know the world those innovations will still happen in the world but then I guess the ideolo- ideology of where they happen in the world comes into play more because if you have if China becomes the new innovation leader then where do you know what argument could you ever have against socialism whatever you want to have again if you know well the freest thinkers the greatest minds the most innovation are coming from this country or to this country from south america south africa well, right. You know, they don't necessarily, and that's another great thing about yeah. America is not all the great minds are from America. It's a place where you can go to grow. Yes, it's an absolute. It's the definition of a melting pot. It's. I respectfully one hundred percent disagree with that, but okay. Why? We vast majority of us speak English. With a, the whole thing about a melting pot is a bunch of cultures coming together, but we're coming together. We're all molding into one culture. Where there's not really a whole no, lot that's of so a melting world, pot would be right? a, as you yeah. stated before. That's the world. Uh, I'm not, I'm, yeah, like, I'm just saying. That, like, I hate when people call the United States a melting pot because it's look not. at you know a place like L.A. or New York. Um, there's I'm sure probably Chinatown, Chinatown Germantown, Queens, but, New York, the most diverse neighborhood in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, you know, cultures, languages, you have, you know, there's Chinatown, there's Koreatown, there's Little Italy, there's, I mean, you know, if that, oh, I yeah. don't know what, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, a, there are there other cities in the, how many other cities in the world are you that you can walk, mm-hmm. I don't know how many blocks between them, I don't know where they're located, I, mean, I don't know anything about that, but were you within a 20 mile radius, can you go and get, 
17 different authentic dishes from so, around the world. Well, that's fine. Just just change your statement to marginally we are a melting pot. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But, you know, it's a, it's a place where you can come to further whatever it is that you wish to do. You know, and it's... And you're free to do so without the permission of anyone else once yeah. you are in. Yeah. I mean, you know, marginally. As long as, <laughs> as, long as what you want to do isn't be a serial killer yeah. or, yeah. you know. Then they're like, no, no, look, no, you can't do that. Unless you want to work for the government. Yeah. <laughs> Dexter hype. Yeah. Hmm, not what I was thinking. I was thinking like you could go work for the CIA or something. Oh, I thought you were going to say the police department. <laughs> Oh, oh boy! Question go? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. My bad. Anyway, uh, now he's arrested. Yeah. <laughs> but so you know, it's there are advantages to the free individualistic society that the collectivist societies don't have, and that would be the individual choices that the person gets to make and the fact that you get to place your happiness above the happiness of everybody else which may be selfish but it works why would you want I mean why would you be concerned whether or not someone you don't know is happy if you're not well it depends how you define happiness so that's going to be you know if your happiness is good health then it, I think it's a good thing to care about your neighbor, at least to an extent. Well, but your neighbor, I think, is different than... Well, your neighbor being an... Like faceless a, Joe Schmo. Well, I mean, your neighbor could be faceless Joe Schmo. I mean, I don't... Do you know your neighbors? I don't know mine. Mildly. I mean, I, I've met, like, Mildly. maybe one. <laughs> so, you know, the whole idea of being a neighbor means a lot less now than it mm. did. Uh, well, and I think it, too, depends on where you live because none of us are homeowners that I know of. I'm a homeowner. Well, I own my condo. <laughs> yes, but you don't have like a traditional white picket. I marginally backyard. own my home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're not in a, a long-term place where you plan to you know, have your kids grow and you don't have the front picket fence, white picket fence in the big backyard and where you would want, you're not in a community of your choosing, you're in a place of convenience maybe, but I'm not sure that really dictates whether or not you care about your, to know your neighbors, well it doesn't necessarily but it drives your desire to meet your neighbors more I think if you're in a place where you intend to settle down versus a place where you intend to pass well when I'm there, I'll let you know. Because <laughs> I know, like, living in the dorms, you don't necessarily know all your neighbors. You know some of the people, undoubtedly, but you don't necessarily know, oh, well, this is Jim. He lives next door. Jim is cool. I like him. This is Tim. Tim's a dick. You know, you don't necessarily, like, you Naturally. may know that, oh, hey, I've seen him in the bathroom. He lives three doors down to the left. But... <laughs> So I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know what the argument is either way, but I think as long as innovation comes 
to happen in the United States, then they will have some sort of say on the global stage. But then all you have to do is get a fantastic spy network like Soviet Russia had, and you'll never have to worry about innovation again. There are ways to circumvent it. Like, I understand what you're saying, well, and I agree. you could say that, but they had a fantastic spy network, and where is <laughs> Russia? I mean, Russian Federation's doing fine. <laughs> Soviet Union. Probably. <laughs> Oh, but anyway, thanks for joining me, guys, on today's episode of Cordial Candor. We'll oh, say your thing. Don't forget to like and subscribe <laughs> and check us out on Facebook or something. What is, I don't know. I still went for that. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk at you next time.